Emergencies usually strike without warning. All right, we're going to try this. But we have to pass the bill so that you can uh, find out what is in it. What? If you like your doctor, you will be able to keep your doctor. What difference at this point does it make? out of what's going on in the world today and come to the right place. Welcome to Southern Sense Talk Radio with your host, Annie, the Radio Chicky Bellis, and featuring Curtis C.S. Bennett and the most interesting guests that you'll find anywhere on Internet Radio. And you can join the show and let your voice be heard by dialing 917 889 Three six seven five. So sit back, relax, and remember, Southern Sense is common sense. All right, we're going to try this one more time. You're here live listening to Southern Sense here on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, the Lone Star Daily News, iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, YouTube, Facebook, all the heck with it. I give up. Blog Talk Radio is messing the F out of me today. I am your hostess with the least mostest today, Annie, the radio chick. And of course, I've got a frustrated audience out there along with the frustrated co-host, Curtis. I have no idea what happened here, but we're yeah, back, I, I think. I feel like I fell down the rabbit hole in Alice in Wonderland sometimes. I mean, I <laughs> Nothing I, I had the hellacious, hellacious time just trying to dial in, and for some reason the program that I use, XSplitter, to do the video is not working. And I checked everything out last night. I sat down at the computer and I says, I'm not going to do like we did last year and have a messed up show starting off. And what happens, even though I checked everything out, made sure it was all done. I, I, you know what? Probably because I had COVID in the title. Um, maybe somewhere along the <laughs> way, the trolls that banned Trump from Twitter have found me and decided to find a way to kick me out. Holy moly. Yeah. If anything can go We'll go wrong. That or the deep state. You don't want that message in now. <laughs> got to blame someone. Mm. Got to blame hey, someone. Hey, I'm a cause. I'm a cause and effect type of guy, so I believe for every effect, there's a cause. Oh man. So I, I'm hoping that I'm up there on Facebook Live. I was, I'm looking at myself on camera, but uh, what a, what a face. Good Lord. <laughs> no wonder why I'm kicked out. <laughs> and yeah, oh, come on. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm up on Facebook. Okay. We got it going. And look at this. It's asking me to start the next episode. It says you're late to start your, this is not me. This is blog talk radio. It, it, I, keep I on hope they don't try to up. shut us down again. 
No, it's telling me I should have started this a second ago, but it, we're up. Obviously, we're up. So, uh, well, hopefully we can. And, and Chief said he can see me up and chase on uh, Facebook. Good. Oh, good. At least something's working here. Anyway, hopefully we're not going to have a problem with our guests calling in or anything like that. Oh, fingers crossed that this doesn't go on for the rest of the show because we got ourselves some great guests. It is all going to be about the lockdowns, cancel culture, and what is going on in America today. We're going to start off with Dr. Michael uh, Bussler. I mean, I love having this guy on. This must be about the fifth or sixth time he's been on. Um, He's a policy analyst and economics expert at a Stockton University in uh, uh, New Jersey. We got a new guy, Apazano, Dr. Salvatore Giorgio Gianni. Uh, He's uh, a senior science advisor to the Men's Health Network. Again, he's also an expert on COVID and men's health and everything else that's going on. Um, We also have Michael Betris, who has a book that came out just last year, I believe June or July, uh, called COVID-19, Lockdowns on Trial. Um, So maybe, probably because they see COVID in the title, they're thinking that we're doing something wrong. And our Heritage Foundation gentleman, who should have called in last week, Joel Griffith, there was a crossing of the wires, and uh, uh, Tom called, uh, sent me messages apologizing so profusely. There's a little bit of a mix-up. No big deal. Defecation occurs, and probably on someone like me several times a day. Oh, boy, where's the mop? Yeah, these things uh, happen. He will... They happen. Yeah, they these happen. things happen all the time. <laughs> all right. Well, uh, for those that listen to the show, know that we do a dedication to a fallen hero each and every show. And last week's dedication got cut off because, again, at the start of the show, we got cut off and knocked off. So we're going to rededicate again to Marine Private First Class Ryan G. Winslow, who was killed in action on April of 2006 uh, while serving during Operation Iraqi Freedom. This was the dedication we attempted to do uh, last week, but we're going to go forward and do it today. And this reads um, from the Military Times. Ryan George Winslow wanted a law enforcement job where he could be at the center of the action on a SWAT team for narcotics. He sought a similar duty when he joined the Marine Corps, partly to help further that goal. Quote, he didn't want to be on patrol riding tickets all day long, his mother, Mary Nell Winslow, said. He wanted to be where the action was, and that's where he ended up with the Marine Corps. The 19-year-old Hoover, Alabama resident was only three weeks into a seven-month tour in Iraq when he and three other Marines were killed on Saturday, April 15, 2006, by a roadside bomb, also known as an IED, in Anbar province. Private First Class Winslow, part of the 2nd Tank Battalion, 2nd Marine Division, the 2nd Marine Expeditionary Force, was driving the Humvee while looking for roadside bombs when he was killed. His mother said two Marines were on overpass looking for any irregularities on the road that might be caused by bombs. The Marines above on the overpass didn't see any irregularities. Mary Nell Winslow said, the commander and Ryan didn't see any irregularities on the road either, went right on. Winslow's parents, 
and a younger sister visited him at Camp Lejeune, North Carolina, before he left for Iraq. His mother said he seemed to be at peace with what he was about to do. He wasn't afraid, she told the Birmingham News. If that was what he was called to do, he was ready to do it. He felt prepared. He felt his platoon was prepared. In front of his family home in Alabama, a marine helmet covered in desert camouflage and two military canteens hung on a stake. A pair of Winslow's military boots stood at the base of the stake, alongside a small U.S. flag and three plastic wraps of roses laid before the display. A card on one of the wraps bore the words, Semper Fi. Winslow attended Hoover High School before passing his high school equivalency exam. He took some criminal justice courses at Jefferson State Community College, then joined the Marines in January of 2005 with ambitions of a future career in law enforcement. He dropped 50 pounds by dieting and running to get in shape for the Marines before basic training, his mother said. That was his goal, and he attained his goal, she said. There are not many people that have that drive. That's the way he was, and that's the way we're going to remember him. Now, on a side note, no one ever really talks about the loved ones left behind, of their pain, loss, fear, or their incredible courage, strength, and dedication, faith, and generosity in their loss. There's more to this story than just the passing of Ryan Winslow. It's also the story about his parents. George Winslow had been out of the Army for 37 years when a family tragedy thrust him and his wife, Mary Nell, into a new life of service to veterans and their families. Marine Lance Corporal Ryan Winslow, George and Mary Nell's son, was killed in action in El Anbar province in Iraq in 2006. Quote, I've gained such appreciation for their service that I didn't have before, he said. The couple showed up at the future home of Three Hots and a Cot, a Birmingham-based organization that tries to keep veterans off the streets. In 2010, before the center ever opened, we called Director J.D. Simpson. Every event we've had since then, they've been there, Simpson said. They are two of the best people you'll ever meet. The organization has a home in Clay, named in honor of Ryan Winslow. On that Thursday afternoon, as he did each week, Winslow was volunteering his time at the Alabama Veterans Memorial Park, helping visitors navigate the grounds. Winslow also volunteers at the Alabama National Cemetery in Montevideo, the Blue Star Foundation, which helps soldiers serving overseas and their families, and several other organizations that help soldiers and veterans. On three weekends, Winslow traveled the state with a memorial to all Alabamans who lost their lives in service to our country since 9-11. Having served stateside during the Vietnam War, he works with others to make sure veterans today Get the welcome home soldiers did not receive in that war. Often, Winslow will mentor the veterans who come through three hots and a cot. I can give fatherly type advice, he said. 
They know my son didn't come home, and they'll listen to me. He and his wife have met Gold Star families, those who had a child killed in combat from across the country. My very main mission, Winslow said, the thing I get fired up about the most is making sure we honor those who died for our country. It's very important they are not forgotten. It's also important, Winslow said, to help those who do make it back home. They signed that contract to put their lives on the line, he said. We've got to make sure they're taken care of because they're protecting our country on the backs of the very few. Ryan's name will be on the Alabama portion of a national memorial that will visit the Hyatt Regency in Birmingham, the Winfrey Hotel, which is the Veterans Week in Hoover. The memorial shows the names and photos of 111 Alabamans who died in the war on terror in Iraq and Afghanistan. George Winslow was asked to be the Alabama organizer for the national effort, which is called Remembering Our Fallen. It originated in Omaha, Nebraska a few years before and is spreading through all 50 states. This is just one of many veteran initiatives in which the Winslows are involved. In 2007, Mary Nail Winslow founded a nonprofit called Alabama Gold Star Families, which recognizes U.S. military families, family members who died serving the country and supports their families. The Winslows were instrumental in creating the Alabama Gold Star Families license plate for those close family members of those killed on active duty. The group raised 45000 for a monument at the American Village in Montevideo in honor of those who died in the war on terror. The Alabama Gold Star families also worked to get a section of Interstate 65 in Chilton County designated as the War on Terror Memorial Highway and raised $3,000 to put signs up. Mary Nels is president of the Alabama chapter of the American Gold Star Mothers. Organized, She organized the group to lay wreaths on veterans' graves at Jefferson Memorial Gardens off of John Hawkins Parkway where Ryan and about 640 other veterans are buried. So if you want to know the pain and cost of 9-11, don't ask someone like Mary Nell Winslow what she was doing on that September morning in 2001. Listen instead to what the Hoover mom was doing at 7 p.m. on a Saturday night almost five years later. It was April 15, 2006, when two Marines came to her home to break the news. She argued with them. She insisted they made a mistake. She told them to go away and to get it right, to properly identify their dead Marine and tell his parents. The 19-year-old killed by a roadside bomb in Iraq was not her right. It could not be. But of course it was. That is the moment that changed the Winslow's lives forever. That is the moment etched in her mind. It is too easy for many of us to remember 9-11 only as the day too many people died in New York, Washington, and Pennsylvania. Honor them, but it would be an injustice to end there. 
because more than 5,000 servicemen and women have died in Iraq and Afghanistan since 9-11 triggered the war on terror. The 129 of those who call Alabama home. You can't remember 9-11 without thinking of Marine Lance Corporal Ryan Winslow or Army Specialist Richard Gilmore III of Walker County. You can't honor the memory of them and of 9-11 itself without pausing for Army Private First Class Jonathan Milliken. He was a high school football player and then a soldier. Then at the age of only 20, he threw himself on a grenade and was gone. There are so many names in the Birmingham area. There was Thomas Rivers and Carly Lee III and Joseph D. Damore, Jeffrey J. Farrow, Kelly S. Pruitt, William Van Ostow, Charles Parrish, Kenya Parker, and Joseph R. Burling, Jr. Nichols Walsh was killed in action, as was Jean Medlin, Marquise A. Quick, Christopher Shornack, George Alexander, Ryan Vaughn, and Cedric Lennon. That's what strikes me as I remember 9-11. It's not just the changed New York City skyline and the shock of attack. Our memory is forever colored by the words that Mary Nell Winslow used to describe her frozen moment in time. Your mind is numb, she said. Your body is numb. Your emotions are numb. Just like 9-11. Because of 9-11. So as we remember those who died that September morning, remember too that tiny fraction among us who stood up to answer the call, who traveled the word world and put themselves in danger so many of us can sit back and refuse to think about it. Remember those who served, those who died, those who will continue to suffer. More than 5,400 veterans of Iraq and Afghanistan have required treatment for physical and emotional injuries at Birmingham's VA hospital. That pain, that cost will last for decades. We swore we would never forget 9-11. Well, that's the easy part. The truth is, we have much more to remember. The Winslows paid the ultimate sacrifice, yet they're not angry, but exhibit the pure love Jesus has shown us. Their selfless love and generosity should shame us all and be a shining example on how we each can strive to be better, better faithful people and better Americans. God has gifted me these new neighbors and friends. I feel blessed, and I may I repay them this wonderful gift. Today's show is dedicated to the memory of Private First Class Winslow. It is also dedicated to the memory of all the brave men and women from our nation have come forth to serve, to protect our nation's freedoms. May we show only one-tenth of their courage and strength. And we dedicate to them this song by Todd Ellen Herndon. My name is America. May God bless 
each and every one.
All right, and we're back. You're again here listening to Southern Sense here on Blog Talk Radio, S-H-R, the teeth and street, S-H-R, Media, the Lone Star, Daily News, iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, YouTube, Facebook, iHeart. Oh, the heck with it. Just go to the name of the show. Put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. Of course, I'm your hostess with the mostest, the radio chick, Annie, having one of those days. But anyway, Curtis, <laughs> are you ready? All right, um, I'll All right, I hope ready. you got the... I, I hope you looked at the emails with everyone's call-in number. Uh, so I, I brought Dr. Bossler on. So let's oh. welcome back to the show for the upteenth time. Uh, and always welcome to have him on the show, Dr. Michael Bussler. Good afternoon, Mike. How are you today? I'm doing well, Annie. Thanks for having me. As you know, it's always my pleasure to be here. Oh, man. I got to admit, I always start off the show with a dedication to a fallen hero, and today's was a little bit difficult. So I sounded a little crazy when I just called you a few minutes ago it's because I was blowing my nose and crying at the same time. I had new neighbors <laughs> move in nearby. The dedication was to their son. Um, I had, you know, with the pandemic and everything else, I still walked across the street and introduced myself to our new neighbors to the neighborhood. And when I found out that they were a Gold Star family, and wow. and then I found out all the good that they do, the the way they help veterans and Gold Star families. I mean, they've had a tragedy, a great tragedy, but they've gone and put themselves above and beyond. And, oh, they just moved me so much that I had to dedicate the show to their son. So I'm sorry if I'm a little bit emotional right now. <laughs> That's fine. I, th- I think it's wonderful what some of these people do. And some of the organizations like uh, Tunnels to Tower and uh, Wounded Warriors – that have come to the aid of uh, a lot of these people, I think is marvelous. I know I contribute to as many of these organizations as I can. Yeah, well, that's something we should all strive to do. And sometimes we don't always manage to do it. We're so busy in our everyday lives. We get caught up in whatever's going on in the news, what the latest celebrity is pulling, whatever stunt is. And we forget, you know, just to look in our own backyard and look around us to those that need help. And, you know, I, it, their example is just so shining. Yeah, yeah it certainly is. Uh, you know, and some of these organizations make it relatively easy for you to contribute. I know Tunnels to Tower, um, I think it's only $11 a month. I just have it come automatically out of my checking account. So I'm able to donate something to them. Not a lot of money, but if everybody does this, uh, it really helps them tremendously. I do this for about eight or ten different organizations uh, where they just take the money out of my checking account every month. Again, it's a relatively small amount, but, um, you know, it adds up and it makes me feel like I'm, you know, helping some of these people that really need the help. Well, you know, I, I got a, whoops, it was my email account going nuts. Um, my mom, God bless her, she's going to be 89 this year, July 4th. Um, so she gets all these things. And for some reason, they pick out senior citizens. They They figure... You know, they're there, they're home alone all day, and they, they're they so happy to get mail and open this mail up. So she gets all these things soliciting her for donations left and right. But God bless her, she'll, she'll turn around and she'll go, well, what do you know about this organization or that organization? And some of them are, you know, pretty pretty slimy. So it's like, yeah, yeah. mom, this one, yes. This, this, and this. Oh, heck no. No, no. Oh, hell no. <laughs> so <laughs> you got to be careful. Um, because there are uh, websites you can go to to check to see how much money is actually going into the actual cause, how much goes to administration, how much goes to paying people, what the people on top are getting paid. You got to check them out. You got to do your homework at the same time. 
Yeah, absolutely right. There are some of these. Um, uh, I know the Clinton Foundation, for, for instance, uh, their administrative fees, I think, are more than 50 percent of what they uh, bring in. So you're really not helping people as much as you think think you are. So you're right to check on some of these things. Uh, make sure the money that you're giving it that says a small administrative fee. Understand uh, there is a small fee involved, but uh, most of the money, the vast majority of the money should be going to the people they're supposed to serve. Well, I, I use a general rule of thumb. If it's anything less than 85%, you're out of here. That's my rule of thumb. Yeah. That's probably a real and good rule of thumb, too. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, uh, let's get on to what we were going to be talking about. You know, um, you know, I still host a tea party. And we haven't yeah. had the meetings the last couple of months because of the COVID pandemic. And we, I was getting ready to start back up onto the meetings. And with everything that's going around, you know, circling around the um, inauguration, and there's this alleged chatter from armed militant groups about the, or, the inauguration, I turned around and I sent an email out to my members because uh, I just want them to be at home, just stay home, be safe, let things calm down. And then after a while, let's get back into you know, what we do. And just tell me what you think, because this is what I wrote. I wrote, never in my lifetime have I witnessed an election cycle so full of violence and conflict. I'm sure you can echo my viewpoint. Our nation has become divided in a manner not seen since pre-Civil War. We, as conservatives, need to call out to each other and every person on all sides of legal political sides for calm, honest, and open dialogue and demand for restoration of all free speech. Cancel culture must stop. It robs innocent people of jobs, homes, family, friends, and community standing. While my call for sanity sounds so wonderful, we must face a reality. Each and every one of us as Tea Party members must realize by our stance, place ourselves, family, and close friends in jeopardy of potential cancel culture or even physical attacks. We stand in the historic and proud traditions of our founding fathers and of the abolitionist movement, vowing our lives and fortunes for the sake of our nation. Yet we understand if you feel the cost is too high, do not be ashamed. You came this far, and we thank you for your support and patriotism. Maybe down the road, things might change. We ask that you just keep your ear to the rail and follow us. You never know what blessings all of our futures may hold. With God's help, we will persevere. We will work for the midterm elections and the 2024 presidential election. We will continue to work and fight for our republic. Join us. We are not incorporated, just a loose group of like-minded friends, not subject to IRS or other government regulations or scrutiny. We do not solicit donations, maintain a bank account, offices, or have paid offices. As a nation, we have seen hard times. As Americans, we have survived those times, and we will again. So please, stay and join us as we work to protect our republic for our children and future generations. Any thought? I think that was extremely well written. And you brought up a couple of uh, excellent points. Number one, violence. Uh, we have to get rid of the violence completely. Um, 
it, it never is justified. Uh, what happened really for the last year, we saw all that violence in cities like Portland and Seattle and in Minneapolis. We saw all that violence and the uh, government didn't it, at the city level and the federal and the uh, state level and even somewhat to the federal level really didn't do a whole lot about that. And they just let these uh, rioters destroy uh, cities. Um, so that had to stop and it, it didn't. Now, of course, what we saw last week at the Capitol building was absolutely horrible. Anybody who was involved in that should be found, prosecuted and uh, put into jail. That's not the way that uh, peaceful demonstrations are supposed to occur. And that was really the first time um, in any of President Trump's rallies there was any kind of violence. And he's had tens of thousands of people in these rallies all over the country, and they all were pretty much nonviolent um, until this happened. And we're still sorting through uh, who's involved in it and uh, who we really should uh, be, uh, who should be held um, accountable. The second point is, uh, about free speech. We, we have a, a democracy. It's actually a constitutional republic, but we have a democratic society here. And in a democratic society, you have to welcome healthy debate. There will, will always be differences of opinion. And in a democracy, it's very important that we listen to both sides, understand both sides, and reach a compromise that everybody can, can live with. That's what's, what we've really lost here for the lay, in the last, I don't know, five, ten years or so. We don't have healthy debate. All we have is people shouting it at each other, trying to convince them that their point of view is the best. And when you go into negotiations and when you're talking about things, the idea is not to go in with, with the intent on selling your position. You believe your position is right, but you shouldn't go in with the idea of selling your position. You should go in with the idea you want to seek a solution. So you have to listen to the other side. Even if you don't agree with them, you have to listen to the other side, let them know why you don't agree, give them your point of view, and ask them why they don't agree, and then discuss this, have a debate, and come up with something that's reasonable and acceptable to the majority people. So this um, trying to cancel free speech uh, Twitter throwing uh, conservatives all the way up to the president off of uh, Twitter and some of these other social media companies trying to quiet free speech. This is a, a terrible thing uh, for it's going to end up hurting them, too, I believe. But it's more importantly, it's a terrible thing for the country as, as a whole where we can't express our views and we can't listen to uh, both sides. You also mentioned the, uh, the Tea Party, which I know you're very active. Um, originally, the Tea Party was formed, the T stands for taxed enough already. So it was really formed as a, a movement against high taxes, and I believe it was very effective. Um, the Congress in 2018 uh, was able to bring tax rates down for, for all Americans, and the Tea Party is showing that higher taxes are really uh, counterproductive for the economy as a whole and really do far more harm than good. I think the Tea Party's original uh, premise of keeping taxes down will come into play a little more in the next year or two because uh, President-elect Biden has said he's going to do away with the uh, 2018 tax cuts, which means everybody's tax rates go up by 10, 10%. 
He says he's going to um, increase the corporate tax rate from 21% up to 28%. Now, that was at 35%. In 2018, they lowered it down to 21%. He wants to raise it back up again. That, too, will be counterproductive. And he's also talking about raising the capital gains tax. It's 20 or 23.8%, depending on how, how big the gain is, up to 23.8%. He's talking about taking it up perhaps to 39 or 40%. Now, he says Biden will argue that the wealthy people should pay their fair share, although he's never really defined what fair share means. And if he really takes a look at uh, taxes and where all the revenue into the government comes from, you could argue the higher income earners are already paying more than their fair share. Uh, in uh, 2019, the last year there's data for, um, the top 20% of income earners, top 20% of income earners paid 84% of all taxes, uh, income taxes collected by the federal government. So the top 20% paid 84% of the taxes. That means everybody else, the whole middle class and upper middle class, uh, paid only 16% of the total revenue collected by the federal government. How much more of a fair share, I'm wondering, will uh, President-elect uh, Biden want? So I think the Tea Party is going to get more active and back to their original uh, premise of keeping uh, taxes low, and they're going to have to do a lot of fighting, I think, in the next couple of years to keep tax rates down. And the lower tax rates really benefit everybody. The Democrats say, well, you're lowering taxes, the wealthy are going to get away cheap. Um, but what ends up happening is, and I know a lot of people don't favor this trickle-down economics, but what ends up happening is if you keep the tax rates low for the lower, the upper classes, and remember that we just lowered them from 39% down to 36, so it wasn't a huge drop, but um, mm -hmm. the upper classes um, are where capital is created. In other words, they, they're high income, they pay their taxes, they spend money on their living style, lifestyle, whatever left over, they save and invest, that becomes capital for the economy. The other way you create capital, corporations retain earnings. Well, again, if you're raising their taxes, they're going to have less net income. They have to pay dividends, so they're going to have less retained earnings. That, too, will reduce capital. Now, the problem with that is when you reduce capital, um, we have a capital-intensive economy. But when you reduce capital, it means that there's not enough capital for expansion, and it tends to slow the economy down. On the other hand, in 2018, when they uh, reduced the tax rates, they created more uh, capital. It allowed not only for the economy to expand, and to be fair, we didn't get quite the growth rates that we would, had hoped for, but nonetheless, it brought the unemployment rate down prior to the virus hitting to 3.5%. That's a historic low, non-war, uh, wartime low, to get the unemployment rate down to 3.5%. And the rate for the minorities African-Americans and Hispanics were also down to record lows and wages were going up faster, mostly for the lower income people uh, than they had in decades. So by keeping the tax rates low and encouraging capital formation, there's more expansion in the uh, economy, more demand for labor. That means there's better jobs, higher paying 
jobs and really everybody benefits. So I think the Tea Party is going to have to get very active in the next year or two trying to convince people that the plans that President-elect Biden are likely to put forth raising the tax rates are really counterproductive and not a good idea. Well, you said a heck of a mouthful right there. So now I know why you're a professor in college. (laughs) (laughs) Class, you have been taught. (laughs) Um, But when the unemployment rate went down. It's a little hard to slow down. I'm sorry. Go ahead. (laughs) That's right. We want you to rant. Go ahead. Uh, Preach. Preach. Uh, But I also noticed that not just minorities, but also unemployment rates for women at the first time in my lifetime, which has spanned several decades, um, is that was now equal to that of men. You know, we were yes. always a lot higher than men, and our wage earnings were now equal with men. Uh, I, it was a phenomenal thing that President Trump has done, and it just flew all out the window. Uh, just, even despite the pandemic, he still kept most of it under control. Under Biden, yes. I was driving past gas station and um i put gas in my car at a dollar 84 well actually i got <laughs> gas buddy so it was dollar actually dollar you know, it was dollar 84 i put in and i turned around to my sister and she says come fill up your gas here because once you go back over to georgia you're going to be paying at least 20 cents a gallon higher and as i thought about it i go you know once biden becomes president we're going to see gas climb all the way back up to around three dollars a gallon that's a scary scary thought you know, and who yeah. does it hurt? It hurts the, the the poorest among us. It hurts the worst because now they can't fill up their cars just to get to work. You know, they're going to use half their paycheck just to go back and forth to work. And, you know, they don't work around the corner. They normally have to drive at least an hour to get to wherever can pay them that decent wage, especially here in the area where we have so much tourism. You know, the hotels and everything are all down by the seashore where everyone else lives in their little single wise is all the way back up in here, about an hour away from where their job is. And it's going to hurt them the worst. And this is the, this is yeah. what they don't look at. when They look at the consequences of what they do when they they hike up taxes, they hike up the cost on other items, because once you get gas goes up. That goes into transportation costs, goes into consumer goods and services. Everything else starts, and it just rolls downhill. And it's a snowball that becomes an avalanche. Yeah, you know, that's exactly right. <clears throat> and I'm, I'm worried about gasoline prices, too. I don't know, um, because uh, Biden sort of gave a couple of different answers. I'm not sure what his view is on fracking. At one time, he said, uh, we're going to do away with it. And then he said, no, I never said I'm going to do away with it. Uh, so I'm not sure what, he, what he's going to do. But not just for the, the energy prices low, which really benefited everybody, from a political standpoint, we, we produced enough energy so that we didn't have to become dependent anymore on uh, the Middle East for our oil. Politically, that made us much stronger uh, also. I'm afraid... Uh, depending on what he does with this Green New Deal, and that remains to be seen, but if you start um, stopping the uh, fracking and uh, stopping uh, exploration of of oil uh, and producing oil, and he starts uh, taking away the permits for some of these pipelines, which he could do by executive order, I believe, um, that's going to drive up the, the price of energy significantly. And you're right. 
uh, we're buying gas now in the low $2 range, it could easily go up to $3 or higher. Um, part of the Democratic Party wants that to happen. They want gas prices to be so high that it will now be cheaper for people to look to other forms of energy, which are now like solar energy and wind, which are good probably in the long run. It's a good thing we're going to do that. But right now it's priced too high. Um, and that's why people are still using as much of the fossil fuel energy as they are. Eventually, these things will transition, uh, even without government intervention. That's the way markets want uh, work. So eventually we'll start producing more of the uh, renewable type energy that will bring the cost of that down. People will start to use that a little more. But you'll have a gradual transition that doesn't disrupt the entire economy. If Biden comes in and starts doing all these things he's at least mentioned doing, the high gasoline prices will result. We'll be producing less energy, which means we'll have to buy some from somebody else. So now we become dependent on somebody else. And again, you're right. When you put raise the price of a consumer product, especially a necessity, it impacts the lowest income earners the hardest. It's like putting a regressive tax uh, into the economy where the lower income earners pay a larger portion of their income to cover these taxes or higher energy fees. So it hurts them the, the most. Um, and uh, Overall, it's going to have a negative impact on the economy and also uh, a negative political impact. Well, there's also something that no one's really taking into consideration. When you decrease oil production, you also decrease the amount of petrochemicals you create. Now, Dr. Busler, can you name me a single thing that you come in contact with today outside of the air you breathe outside of your residence, the fresh air outside, something you come in contact with Every on any day that is not involved with petrochemicals. I mean, from the clothing you wear to the parts in your vehicle to the cosmetics you use as you get ready in the morning or go to bed at night, every single thing in our life in one form or another is involved with petrochemicals. And if you tell me, oh, the lawn outside, uh, well, you do seed that lawn and you do water it. Well, that seed has to be packaged. It's got to be harvested. Somewhere along the way, every single thing we come in contact with involves petrochemicals. That's true. So everything that, that we buy and uh, everything we consume had to be produced, and it had to be produced using uh, energy. And right now, we rely on those petrochemicals to provide uh, inexpensive energy or enough or at least reasonably priced energy that we can produce these products and sell them at reasonable prices. You start to do away with these petrochemicals and uh, try to substitute uh, other energy forms, which, were much, which are much more expensive and not nearly as efficient as yet. And again, time will go on and things will change. But if you start doing this abruptly before the market is really ready for us, it's going to cause all kinds of uh, problems. The best bet is to let the market work the way it it's supposed to work, you end up with a better solution uh, and far less disruptions in the um, economy. The last thing we need now, look look at the big picture for, for a minute. The U.S. economy has really been stagnant, even under the Trump where we had better uh, uh, economic conditions, but we've really been stagnant for two decades. We haven't had 4% annual growth 
since the year 2000. Um, and since that time, from 2000 to, to uh, 2008, we averaged um, about 2.5% growth. From uh, 2008 to 2016, we averaged less than 2% annual growth. Now, Trump picked that up a little bit, not as much as we'd hoped for, but we need to get back to the point where we're growing. The economy is growing at a 4% rate. Look, after the uh, Reagan tax cut in 82, in 1984, the economy grew at a 7.5% rate. After the Kennedy-Johnson tax cut in 63, by 64, 65, we were going, growing at a 6% rate. Even in 96, when Bill Clinton cut the capital gains tax from 28 down to 20%, we averaged 4.5% annual growth for the next four years. Those are the kind of growth rates we need to get the economy uh, really back on its feet and get into stability and provide the key thing that's important for all Americans, and that is to provide opportunity. Rather than giving low-income people just throw money at them, give them more food stamps, free health care, free welfare, uh, just throwing money at them, they really don't want it. Take it because they don't have any other alternative. But what they really want is the opportunity to earn enough income to pay for their own food and their own health care and have their own dignity. That's what President Trump tried to do in his uh, three or four years. Now, the virus messed it up in 2020. but.
again, look at the big picture for a minute. Um, the U.S. went from the birth of a nation to the largest, most prosperous economy in the world in about 150 years. Other countries were hundreds, in some cases thousands of years older. We did it in 150 years. How did we do it? In my view, there were four basic principles. One, we encouraged individual freedom. So as long as you didn't infringe upon anybody else's rights, you can pretty much do what you wanted to do. Secondly, we encouraged individual responsibility. When able, everybody should be taking care of themselves. Thirdly, we encourage low rates of taxation so that when you earn something, you got to keep most of it. And fourthly, we had a limited role for government. They got out of the way. Certain things government has to provide, defense, uh, what we call public goods, defense of the country, a legal system, et cetera. But pretty much government stayed out of the way. So individual freedom, individual responsibility, low rates of taxation, and a limited role for government, that's what made the U.S. great, in, in my view. Those are the principles, really, that the hippies wanted. They wanted individual freedom. We can take care of ourselves. We said, stop taking money that we're earning, take less of it, and get the government off our back. Uh, and to what happened over time, look, look at everything uh, uh, President-elect Biden wants to do. He wants to uh, control the health care market, control the higher education market. Now, when the government controls a market, they're going to dictate who gets what. So you're going to lose individual freedom. Secondly, when the government takes care of you, there's now social responsibility, replaced, uh, which replaced individual responsibility. Thirdly, in order for Biden to pay for all this, regardless of what he says, you're going to have to tax everybody. So you're now going to get higher rates of taxation rather than lower rates. And lastly, you have a large role for government. I heard on the, new, uh, the newscast today, people were saying, well, look, Biden wants a larger role for government, and that's what he's proposing. So everything he says will lead to less individual freedom, less individual responsibility, higher rates of taxation, and a bigger role for government. That's exactly opposite to what made this country great. And we should emphasize that what he's doing now will be counterproductive. It may help a couple of uh, a small percentage of, of lower income earners, and we're sympathetic to those people, but it's going to overall be negative for the economy. You're going to see growth rates going uh, down, and I'm afraid you're going to see inflation start to uh, pop, pop up too. Um, the solution to it is get back to the basic principles, but I don't know that Biden is interested in that. Oh, Michael, where can people find you? So my Twitter account is at mbusler. That's at M-B-U-S-L-E-R. And if you have a Facebook page, search for Funding Democracy. Funding Democracy, and I'd be happy if you followed me. All right, and people can also find your articles at Newmax, Newsmax, uh, The Hill, Western Journal, and Town Hall. Michael, you're always fun to have on the show, and you know I love you dearly. <laughs> Thank you, Annie. I feel the same way. <laughs> God bless. All right. Check out Michael Busler. His link is also on our show page. And we've got our next guest in. And I gotta, I have to apologize because, you know, with the technical difficulties I've been experiencing today, everything has gotten upside down, backwards, and inside out. But I want to welcome a fellow Paisano to the show, uh, Dr. Salvatore Giorgio John. I just messed that up. Giorgio Johnny. Uh, good afternoon, Dr. Sal. How are you today? I'm fine. Thanks for having me on the show, Ann. 
All right, right now my my grandmother's rolling over in the grave and she's going, Anuch, he's a nice and Italian boy. You behave. <laughs> <laughs> well, Dr. Sal is fine. It's easier on everybody. But then again, Dr. Sal, she also had another favorite thing. She said, she goes, Anuch, you know, the only thing between an Italian and a Jew is we will put a tomato in our chicken soup. She's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I grew up Very in New York nice. City, so... Uh... And we had a family business down on the Lower East Side. So I am well acquainted with all those cultural uh, similarities. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm a native New Yorker, but I got as, as far south as I could, as fast as I could. Um, as a matter of fact, I don't know if you were aware, I used to also not only own several businesses on Long Island, uh, but I was a New York City cop at one point. And uh, Greenpoint had always a great Italian festival mm. uh, going down to yeah. Italy for the day parade. And I was a board officer for the Columbia Association for NYPD. So, yeah, I, oh, I'm nice. steeped in that. Yeah. I mean, the oh, best mozzarella cheese I used to get off of Metropolitan Avenue <laughs> over in the Greenpoint area. Where all the great um, bread was. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, God, I'd weigh a ton if I still live there. Anyway, um, you are a, a consultant for uh, Men's Health Network, which does a lot of good work on, on not just dealing with uh, physical issues, but spiritual issues, too. Um, but ever since we've had this pandemic, we have seen things going on in society that I never thought would ever come to these United States, to our republic. And a lot of this is frightening with the lockdowns, uh, with the massive closures, people losing jobs, uh, people losing their mental stability in everything that's going. Increase in drug abuse, alcohol abuse, domestic violence abuse, and it's not letting up. Yeah, it is a very frustrating situation. Uh, And I think it's made a little bit worse by some of the uh, misalignments of uh, politics and uh, need to control the virus or the science uh, that have occurred in some parts of the country. Uh, I also uh, try to be gracious about it because we were dealing with a set of circumstances in a very large global economy with people traveling very quickly all over the, all over the world uh, and, a, and a very uncertain situation So I think at the beginning, people were doing as much as they could do to make sure that we were containing things as much as we could. And I think over time, that kind of snowballed and drove out to the point where now it's becoming an intolerable uh, situation for a lot of folks. It is, as you mentioned, leading to a lot of the uh, social problems that we're having. Uh, We are seeing suicides in men. Uh, which are at all-time high, by the way, uh, three times higher than that in women, uh, also being impacted. We're looking at economic downturns, and it's not like just turning a, a light switch on or off. Once we get the pandemic under control, uh, my thinking is probably not till around August, September, uh, at the rate they're going with vaccinations. Uh, until we get that under control, it's going to take another year, year and a half, perhaps, for some of these small businesses to come back and rebuild and, and start up again. So it's, it's a very difficult situation. And the, the, I won't say the cure is worse than the cause, but it is a very difficult thing. And 
my concern and the concern of Men's Health Network is people aren't addressing that issue now, programs or projects. A lot of talk about it, but not an awful lot of support for folks out there. Well, you know, I had made a comment to a previous guest that uh, we're now living almost in the age of iRobot. Isaac Asimov just basically trying to said, your society one day is going to look like this. Everyone's going to be locked up in their homes. The only communication you're going to have is via technology. You're not going to have any human interaction. And that's almost is what we're almost to that brink of that point at this moment. Yeah, I uh, I do hope that the human spirit breaks through all of this when the pandemic is under control and people are vaccinated and we get to proper levels of population immunity. Uh, and you'll probably remember more vividly than many that after September 11th, which I was working in New York City uh, during that time, uh, that people were hunkered down as much as they could for a little while and then the human spirit and there was a lot of talk about well we don't need to travel to meetings anymore everything will be by phone or by video or uh, such and such uh but i think we 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 as humans crave physical interaction with other humans one of the big problems with the isolation and the lockdowns is the lack of even simple things that are so important to folks such as human touch you know, a, a nice touch on the shoulder, uh, a hug to a close friend, uh, a handshake. These are all things that are missing. So a lot of the social behavior of humans who are, by definition, really, uh, very interactive with each other and crave human touch and human companionship, I think that will make a strong comeback. But we can't allow government to put, after this pandemic is under control. We can't allow local governments to put artificial restrictions in that are going to exacerbate or make all of this worse. You know, there's, there's a lot to be said because I'm one of those that cannot wear a mask. Uh, I Instead, I use a face shield if I have to go somewhere. Uh, I, I get very ill. I, I don't know if it's because I got constant sinus infections and I keep on breathing that infection into my lungs. But there are people that cannot wear the mask. So, you know, how do they go about their daily lives? It's very, very difficult. And I'm sorry, Chris, as yes. soon as he answers this. Yeah, it, it is very difficult. And uh, even as we go through the vaccination period, until we get herd immunity or what I'd rather call population immunity, I don't like to think of my fellow human beings as, as cows or horses, as we get population immunity, we really need to continue the social distancing, mitigation, hand washing, face coverings, uh, because what, the, what folks don't often realize is that with, even if you're vaccinated, you still can carry the virus in your system and spread it. So it's not like there's some superhero magic uh, impenetrable shield around you. The virus can't get through. The virus can still get into you from someone else. It just doesn't do any harm to you because your body fights back and the antibodies destroy the virus when it's in you. But you can still be a carrier and you can still shed viruses through respiratory droplets. Uh, So there's going to be a protracted period. This is going to be very frustrating to folks and uh, we're, we're afraid, uh, especially a lot of the guys who uh, 
uh, are concerned about continuing on all of the mitigation. So, but people have to realize there's a reason why it has to continue on until we have that population immunity. Curtis, go ahead. Dr. Georgiani, we, we always yes. hear about external remedies, say like um, wearing a mask, social distancing, and washing our hands, but we rarely hear, if any, about internal remedies such as um, supplements to boost our, you know, immune system. And and I was just wondering why that is. Um, and is it, you know, is it important to boost our immune system? Yeah, we absolutely boost the immune system. And thank you for bringing that up. Uh, I think we hear about all of these mitigation techniques because it's such a tough road to how to get people to do it. Uh, we do know that the virus, uh, individuals who have poor overall health uh, are much more susceptible to more dangerous uh, infections from the virus. So, uh, and that's one of the problems we're uncovering with our overall health care, the, the mortality, the, the morbidity, the disease levels, particularly in guys, uh, is much higher than we would like it to be or should be in a technologically advanced country. But simple things like making sure you're, you have adequate nutrition, uh, that you are taking vitamin D and you don't have a vitamin D deficiency because there's a lot of data that very clearly points to the fact that people with low levels of vitamin D uh, do much worse when you get the virus. Uh, many people, and I included, believe that zinc supplements can help. Some people say take some zinc supplements every day, the, the lozenges under the tongue or, or one of those things that, that you can use. Uh, or, and some people say at the first sign of any respiratory distress, you use zinc. Uh, so, for example, someone who has constant allergies, you know, making sure that your sinus passageways are clear using a neti pot or some other way to cleanse your sinuses would be very, very helpful because that's where we know these viruses like to reside. So, yeah, there are things that you can do. Uh, they're, they're common sense things, really. Uh, they're the kind of things that we should be doing to help ourselves from the inside out all the time, but we've forgotten to do. You know, I'm one of those that I have to take a vitamin D uh, prescription supplement because my body, does, for some reason, doesn't retain it. But yeah. thankfully, my doctors have me on this for years so it's very helpful. And my husband has been taking a vitamin D supplement for years. So it's funny how just something as simple like that could help ward off a disaster uh, because we both have underlying yeah. health issues. There's, there's three people in my house, and all three of us are handicapped in one form or another. And uh, it, it, it's something that we have to be super careful about. But they're talking about now, and with these new vaccines coming out, and there's like four different uh, companies with them, the U.S. military has also come up with a vaccine I was reading about that seems to be able to handle any possible mutations where the others don't. Is that what you're hearing? Well, uh, I haven't heard about a one developed by the military. I do know that we have lots of laboratories within the government structure, mostly at the CDC and NIH, looking at the new strains of viruses that are emerging and that's what viruses do you know they 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 follow the law laid down in jurassic park nature will find a way uh so to to evolve to survive and it's what a good virus does it it looks to transmit itself very readily and it looks to not kill its host 
so it can survive in the host and transmit more viruses. So the, thank goodness the, the way the viruses are uh, emerging, or some people call it mutating, but really evolving uh, now is that they are more easily transmitted, uh, but they're not more virulent. They don't cause any more or any higher level of disease if you get them. Uh, so there are people looking at all of these mutations. Uh, I believe I've seen that there are about 22 different mutations identified so far. Uh, they're in 50 countries in this level or that level. We don't, can't really know exactly. Uh, but the best news here uh, and, all, and your listeners is that the, virus, the vaccines we have now work with these viral mutations, work with these evolved viruses. So there isn't any worry. One of the reasons we absolutely have to vaccinate as many people and get to that population immunity level as quickly as possible is to dampen the development of more uh, evolutions or more mutations of the virus. Because you know somewhere out there, uh, there's a high possibility uh, that one of these viral mutations or strains can be relatively less effective for the current vaccines. They are also looking at uh, people with Pfizer, Moderna, Johnson & Johnson, government labs. They're working very hard to make sure that if a, if a viral strain is identified, uh, that they can quickly modify the vaccines so that they can attack these viral strains efficiently if they should be somewhat resistant to the current vaccine. But that's going to take a couple of months. And it's going to take a few months to get that new type of vaccine into production. And it's going to take a few months to get it or, or more at the rate things are going into people. So, you know, we, we really can't be hoping for that. What we have to push for, move heaven and earth, as President-elect Biden says, to get everybody vaccinated very, very quickly. Well, then there's those of us that can't take the vaccine. For example, uh, my husband has just been uh, cleared of cancer but he has other underlying issues uh that if he were to take the vaccine he may have a severe reaction i'm someone i have to walk around with a medical alert bracelet because i've got so many other allergies and i walk around with an epi mm. so i don't end up back in the hospital so there's going to be those of us that can't but then that comes to beg the question um new york state assembly has a, a bill before it a416 where if you are deemed to be a quote-unquote threat to the population, uh, I'm someone that can't take the vaccine, so I may pose a threat to the population, where they would actually physically detain you and quarantine and isolate you. Go into your home, your place of work, yank you out, possibly in cuffs, and throw you in jail. Now, that's a scary thought that New York State is actually considering something like this. And when I read the legislation halfway through it, the wording changes where they're not talking about being contagious with a disease, where they just simply seem to feel you might be a threat to the populace. So in other words, someone that uh, may be a conservative, a gun-carrying, Bible-toting individual like myself, they may deem to be dangerous. That's a scary thought here, Doctor. It's uh, an Orwellian, you know, 1984, for all of us who remember having had to read it in high school and hating reading that stupid, stupid stuff that, of course, 
is all made up. I think it takes on a new Strats reality now, what we're seeing. So I have not heard of that bit of legislation, uh, legislative genius, uh, but um, I do understand your point. There is provisions in the public health law as it exists for the feds to quarantine individuals who may be a threat to the public health, uh, but it kind of depends on how you define threat to the public health. So I do hear now that uh, anyone who owns a gun is by some folks in the public health community considered to be a threat to the public health. Uh, and uh, we're, we're seeing all sorts of abuses. So as I said earlier on in the discussion, uh, uh, people were doing what they thought was the right thing for the right reasons under very imperfect information for a situation that nobody really knew what was going on. It's kind of like the you're, you're better doing an over-response to the events of September 11th than an under-response because you just don't know. But once you find out, you have to allow for uh, more moderate thinking. So a bit of legislation that would give the government the ability to put you away or quarantine you because they feel that your speech is a danger to the public or lock you up or virtually lock you up by locking you out because your speech is a danger to their public in their view uh, is, I think, very, very dangerous. It's, it's extremely scary. And then when you throw on the behaviors of Governor Cuomo and Mayor de Blasio throughout this whole entire pandemic, I mean, I have never seen anyone mishandle a situation as badly as these two individuals. You know, I'm hearing that up to 66% of the vaccines have to be discarded in New York City because they are so highly restricted on who gets it and when it's phased in. And, oh, heaven forbid, one hospital gets actually fined for vaccinating first responders and law enforcement officers. And the mayor and the governor didn't feel that they should have been vaccinated. You've got the people on the front line and you're not going to vaccinate them. And then 66 percent of the vaccines get tossed because they're not used in a timely fashion. This is outrageous. Yes, that's my understanding as well. And that is in very... uh stark contrast to what we've seen in West Virginia, uh, where the governor did notice that some people who were first in line, the hospital workers wearing, and some of the first responders weren't getting vaccinated to the level that they initially thought or would have wanted. Uh, so he quickly turned around and issued executive orders to just say, open it up to people who need it. Let them have it. Why are we holding back? And we don't want to throw it out. Whereas in New York, Folks were so, and this is the point to your previous note about the legislation that you you hear is uh, being worked through uh, New York. They were so afraid of incurring the wrath of the governor and the mayor for doing something humanitarian, which is not prescribed by a centralized government entity, that they decided that it would be safer for them as institutions and individuals to throw out these precious uh, vaccines rather than to move them around or to administer them to people who might have been in the 1B category. So I think one of the 
unintended side effects uh, of a uh, over-restrictive government hand or uh, overly heavy government hand is people are afraid to do the right thing or people are afraid to help with it in a human way because the regulation is written as a regulatory and in a punitive way. And it's it's absolutely crazy. I like I said, I've never seen two individuals work so counterproductive in such a situation like this. And when Governor Cuomo ordered, and the governor did order this along with his uh, health secretary, that they put um, COVID into nursing homes. I'm, I'm thinking this is what they call a WTF moment. What are they thinking? These are not emergency medical facilities where critical cases can be handled. And a lot of these don't even have the proper equipment they would need to handle this. You know, this is not an emergency room. You've got elderly that have underlying health conditions. What do you think is going to happen here, Governor Cuomo? And then he turns around and denies the fact that he ordered this. We're not, hello on the internet, that memo circulating all over the place. You know, this, I just you know, don't understand Florida, him. Had, I was going to say, in Florida, we had similar situations. And my son who's a physician here, and he takes care of uh, several patients in nursing homes and his medical director for two. Of course, we have the same situation. What do you do with these older, frail individuals who don't have family to go home to and need round-the-clock care? So what was done in Florida is they did Exactly what you were suggesting, and, and they created, uh, they basically uh, used public uh, eminent domain or whatever the appropriate uh, regulation is to take one or two uh, assisted living facilities in certain locales and counties across Florida and designate them as COVID uh, treatment centers, and they brought all of the individuals that are older and infirm that had COVID into these facilities, they beefed up their support staff, they brought in additional equipment, personal protective equipment, uh, they had identifiable protocols and procedures should someone uh, have symptoms of COVID where they could get them to urgent care or emergency rooms quickly and they were cared for very differently. So I think it's a matter of approach uh, and I don't understand exactly why what happened and happened in New York, but I do know that in Florida, uh, there seems to have been a much more enlightened approach. And sure, my son had to live in his trailer, uh, his RV, for about three months uh, while he was taking care of these folks, but they were able to mitigate it, protect the rest of the elderly population, and um, and that that's also one of the drivers for, I think, what is a very reasonable policy in in Florida, which was to put people 65 years and over at the front of the line because they constitute 80% of the deaths from COVID, as opposed to somehow trying to create these broad artificial categories that may or may not follow the real science of how to keep people alive. So there are options, and I think it's some governors uh, have done it very, very well. Some governors have done it just fine. And some governors, for some reason or other, uh, have not really executed the way their population wants. But, you know, these folks are up for re-election. And in America, re-elections are very important uh, stopgaps on making sure the population has a final say about what they think is good and 
what they think isn't good. You know, here in South Carolina, uh, God bless Governor McMaster's, you know, he, he was spot on throughout the whole pandemic. And he's gotten the vaccinations out there real fast to the point where um, I was getting several emails, text messages and phone calls because they know that I've got two individuals in my home that are over the age of 70. And I said, listen, you want to make the appointment? Um, This is who you call. This is what's nearest to you. Even my doctor was uh, contacting us left and right. So, you know, here they're being very aggressive on getting the vaccination out. But I guess they think it's something like gold out there. You know, it is so precious that, oh, we have to be careful on every single little drop. Oh, yeah. Then you have someplace like New York State where throughout the state, 60 percent of the of the vaccinations are being tossed because they have a time, date and temperature stamp on them. You know, it, it, it's a right. fragile mixture that, you know, has to be handled with absolute care. It doesn't have a permanent shelf life. It, the fact that they they Hold, held this back from the rest of the population is just unforgivable. I mean, I can, I cannot stress how angry I am to see what they're doing to uh, the state of New York. You know, on top of which, Janice Dean lost both of her parents. She's a Fox yes. News commentator to um, the, the virus. And someone I went to high school with lost within two weeks his mother-in-law and his father to the virus. And when I see the handling of the way, and this all dealt with being in nursing homes, um, when I see the way he handles it and then denies the fact that he is responsible, uh, I keep on asking, why isn't he being charged uh, with manslaughter charges at this point? This is mass murder. It's just unbelievable. Because at this point, uh, we've got something like, what, 350 million uh, people living in the United States legally that we are aware of. And we're very lucky. We've got less than 1% of people contacting or dying from the, um, should be honest about that, dying from the coronavirus. We're only at 380,000, considering the population we have compared to the amount of people that have actually passed away. And that's a very good number. Yes, it is. Uh, early on, many of your listeners may remember particularly those who like to keep score on such things, that the predictions were 10%, 5 to 10% death rate because of COVID. And those were very realistic predictions based on the, the, the study, the epidemiology, the study of how the disease spreads and how it might take hold. We've been tracking viruses like uh, COVID-19 since 2003, really, the, the, the whole family of viruses. This isn't one isolated virus. It's a member of a family of the SARS viruses. So we've been tracking as scientists, virologists, epidemiologists to do this for a living. And the prediction early on was 5 to 10% of the U.S. population would succumb, not get it, but die from it. Was done, was remarkably effective, and we can't lose sight of that uh, fact. So it might not have been perfect, and I think we won't know what the perfect solution would have looked like until we take a few uh, years to analyze uh, and review all of this. And that's so important, by the way, because one thing you can notice if you look at the history of pandemics and as they occur, they used to occur every couple of hundred years or so, and now they're occurring every five to ten years. 
we're getting some sort of global uh, infectious uh, or very widespread epidemic. Uh, and if you look at the history of it uh, and the timelines, you'll see it's compressed. So uh, you, these lessons we are learning about what to do, what not to do, the influence, the positive influence of media, such as you've described, where you're getting constant encouragements to go get vaccinated, uh, to think about it uh, from local people you trust and understand, who trust you, like your physician, uh, your pharmacist, whoever. Uh, We've got to learn those lessons because we will get hit again. Uh, Three years, five years, ten years, I don't know. Uh, But I do know it will happen again. Well, Dr. Sal, I want to thank you for joining us. Where can people find you? Uh, Well, I'm working with the Men's Health Network, which is a 25-year-old organization that looks out for the health and welfare of men, boys, and their families. And we have a lot of information about this and other health matters that affect the the guys out there at www.menshealthnetwork.org, www.menshealthnetwork.org. Well, God bless you for the hard work you do, sir. And we definitely will welcome you back on the show anytime. Anytime you'd like me to talk about all the issues that affect men and boys and their families, I'd be more than happy to talk with you, a fellow New Yorker. <laughs> all okay. right. Now I'm a- <laughs> all right. Dr. Sal, check him out, uh, menshealthnetwork.org. There's a link up on the show description. Just click on it, and you can uh, find out more about the hard work he does. I uh, want to welcome our next guest on the, the show. He is the author of a book that just came out this past year, called COVID-19, Lockdowns on Trial, Michael Betris. Good afternoon, Michael. How are you today? Hi, Annie. How are you? Oh, I'm doing I'm, – I'm having one of those days, honestly. You know, uh, we started <laughs> off the show. We had so many technical difficulties just getting the show off on the air. And i got to admit, I am now in the 11th year of doing this. I am just 18 shows away from my 1,000th episode. And the closer wow. I get to number 1,000 is the more technical difficulties I have. Right now, I'm listening to my computer wheezing away, and I'm going, oh, my God, this is a brand-new computer. What else could possibly go wrong? Have you ever had one of those days? I think we've all had some of those days. <laughs> Actually, it feels like one of those years. It feels like this year has uh, been one of those days, or last year. Oh, don't, don't even start because my pastor called just to see how we were doing. And I, I've got a crazy sense of humor. And the only way you sometimes can get through situations like this is using your sense of humor. And I says, well, if I were to turn around and tell you everything we have, it would be two volumes of War and Peace. <laughs> so you want yeah. the short version? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's pretty funny. Oh, man. So what do you think about now, everything? Uh, what do you think about COVID-19 and the lockdowns? Oh, geez. You know, um, if I start off, this would be the third volume of <laughs> War and Peace. <laughs> uh, I was hearing about the virus back in November of 2019. And the reason why we were hearing whispers about it is that I have two friends of mine that were serving in, as missionaries over in China in the Wuhan province, and they were telling us that something was going on. And cities and areas were being, the police were constantly around knocking on the doors saying, if you get sick and you're a foreigner, you're on your own. 
And they were taken aback by that. What do you mean if I get sick? Why are you pointing out the fact that I'm a foreigner to begin with and you're not going to let me go into the hospitals type of thing is what they were hearing. And then you had the Chinese New Year. And if anyone is familiar with Chinese custom, this is the one, it's, it's like a two-week period, almost a month period, where they travel, the only time they can really travel throughout China to visit family and friends, and they share community foods, tables, and everything else. It was just the perfect Petri dish for the spread of the Wuhan virus. And we were hearing about this through the missionaries, through our friends. And they would send uh, emails to us, but of course it was through another friend, so it wouldn't trace back to them, and they would use code names and everything else, just because they were afraid of the communist government finding out that they're getting this information out there, which is of course completely against any communist party, you know, propaganda protocol. Um, so we had whispers and words. So now. I'm hearing, I'm seeing news reports that the CDC said that it's possible as early as November 2019, we may have had the first cases of Wuhan virus in the United States. Now, this is very interesting to me. This is like an addendum to your book. Yeah, I I read that. uh, I did read that. I know the official word, the official word. Uh, out of China was it was right around New, Year, uh, uh, New Year's Eve last year that they di- they actually identified SARS-CoV-2 uh, and named it uh, as the virus that was causing some of the um, some of the stuff. But I, I did hear, in fact, I think it was either Washington or California that might have been recently identified as having um, a fatality as, as backdated as January 4th of last year. Um, that's a good good month earlier than what what the previous date was. So yeah, no, I'm, either way, I'm uh, however it started, uh, however it started, the way that this thing has taken hold, and the actions that we've taken uh, are like something we 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 would have never imagined if we'd have seen it in a movie. No, no, it is. It's almost as if it's coming out of a movie script. And um, oh, here's here's it. This was up on. The Daily Wire that the CDC now says COVID-19 reached us by mid-December. I think they were using the date of December 17th. Um, They're claiming they were saying originally in January 19th, but they backdated it to between December 13th and January 17th. And they're saying that they showed antibodies in 39 samples from California, Oregon and Washington state. That's interesting. Yeah, very possible. Uh, very possible. Uh, I, I, I'm, you know, but they're treating this. Our governments, most, you know, our governors have treated this as if it was the virus that was uh, that Madaba virus from the movie Outbreak, and uh, and so we've we've had such strict policies in place around a virus that is very very identifiable in terms of who it's who who is what segments of the population are at risk. And the fact that we've maintained for 10 months these one-size-fits-all lockdowns, I, I just can't believe, can't believe that we're still where we are, uh, where we were in March. Well, you know, as I was pointing out to Dr. Sal, we've got something like 350 million legal residents we, are, we know of in the United States, approximately somewhere between 330 and 350 million. But we've only had 380,000 deaths. 
that's less than 1% of 1% of our population. And yet we're treating it as if it's the number one killer in the United States. In fact, it's, I think it's number five or six on the list. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, it's, it's first off, the number you just mentioned, uh, even the CDC would tell you that number is substantially inflated. Um, and the reason is that we include two things into those, uh, the COVID-19 death counts. One of them is probables. Uh, we know that for a fact. And the other is people that are dying that would test positive for the virus. This goes for hospitalizations too, um, versus dying from having COVID-19. And so that number, when you start really peeling the data back, the actual numbers in terms of hospitalizations and deaths, they're much closer to about two-thirds than they are the full, you know, three-thirds or um, the full number. So, it, it, you know, what we've got right now is about 250,000 deaths uh, due to COVID-19. That's a real number. That's a substantial number. We've got a good 100,000 excess deaths this year that are caused by the lockdowns, um, and that's a substantial number too. And of the people that are over 50 or so, uh, 50 or 60, about 10% of each, uh, each age's deaths have come from COVID-19, either with or from the virus. And 96%, I mean, almost all of them have had three-plus comorbidities. So this thing just is not a risk to the general population, the young uh, population, uh, and, and honestly, if, probably if you're older but healthy, um, you're not a very, very significant risk. And so, again, this one-size-fits-all, these sweeping lockdowns, is, uh, it's, just, it's just a tragedy to America. And what it really gets me is that, you know, you've got to stay in your house. And yet, Governor Cuomo, several months back, I think about six months back, admitted there were more instances of infection of people that are locked down in their homes compared to people that are out there in the fresh air, in the public, working outside, exercising outside, just sunbathing. But well, there's no real demonstrated zero. spread outside. There's really, I mean, the yeah. idea of people wearing masks outside or doing activities outside, there's no real spread outside. When you see somebody walking down the street um, wearing a mask, they, they just don't understand the data. I don't mean, I don't condemn them, by the way. I see it all the time. I, I more feel sorry for them that they don't understand this. But um, it's not like SARS-CoV-2, the virus is, you know, flying around like pollen in the air. That's not how this is. Um, you know, it's more concentrated contact. It, it almost, Practically all the spread is indoors. Uh, somebody might catch it. They'll bring it home to their whole family. That's how everybody I know. I mean, I've, I've known um, a few dozen people that have tested positive. Um, one fatality in my family, somebody who was 72 in a care facility uh, in Detroit back in April, and everybody else, nobody else I know has been hospitalized, but have known, you know, a good 30 or 40 people that have um, tested positive. Some were mildly symptomatic, to be sure, but uh, that's what seems to happen: is one person will get it, they'll take it home, and then everybody gets it. Well, my mother lost her brother, my uncle, just this past month. Um, to the COVID virus, but he also had numerous underlying, you know, issues with it. You know, if you don't die from the COVID, whatever else is there is eventually going to get you. Just now you go a little bit sooner. Uh, Fortunately, you didn't have long period of suffering. So now they they label that as a COVID death. Meanwhile, he would have died probably another month down the road from whatever the other issues were. Uh, 
But no, no, we've got to label it as COVID because why do we do this? Because the hospitals get extra federal dollars for every death they mark as a COVID. Uh, yeah, I mean, that, that is true. I, I've, I'm connected with a few people, a few doctors and hospitals and in, in, in doing some of this research. Um, my opinion is I don't feel like there's a lot of fraud that's going on uh, versus them, them following the CDC guidelines, which can include a probable. And why wouldn't they, by the way? These lockdowns have basically bankrupt the healthcare industry. It's hard to imagine. It was one of the things that, w- that triggered me to write this book was when we were locked down in April, I learned that hospitals were not just empty, but completely going broke, like ready to lay off doctors. And I mean, it was just a mess. And, uh, and so in a way, I don't feel like you can, you can blame the hospitals or physicians for doing this, given that, that the lockdowns have hurt their industry and they're simply following the law, following the guidelines. So that, that, that one doesn't actually bother me. What it does, no, though, it, is it provides a context for, um, for a higher number that sounds a little bit daunting. And so right now we've got – we lose this time of the year about 8,000 Americans a day to all causes. That's just – that's about every year. And we're running above that – uh, about 17 or 1800. So when you see like 4,000 deaths, our highest number, well, that's not really real because over half those deaths that particular day are backdated. So you kind of have to look at the excess death numbers. That's the only true number that's got integrity. And we are running, you know, 17, 1800 uh, above average. That's that's real right now. Um, is it real enough given the age and comorbidities of the uh, of the people that? That lost their lives to this to lock down everybody to keep kids out of school capacity restrictions on businesses and basically hold you know the the 300 healthy americans kind of at hostage out of this it just doesn't make sense exactly exactly now you have an interesting background you don't have a background uh, in medicine or anything like that you were someone that we're helping people get make their jobs right. better get better that this was not your field, so you did yeah. a complete 180 to write this book. So, what drove you uh, to do this? Because it right. is a very detailed and well-researched book. Thank you. So, uh, it was the first part of this was I was I was recreationally, you know, just as an American, following the two cruise ships that were quarantined in February and March. One was uh, both Princess cruises. One was off the coast of Japan. One was in California. And the second cruise ship that came in in early March in California, I'd been on that cruise ship the second time it ever went to sea. Uh, and so I paid a little extra attention. And when it, if you remember this, when it was coming into um, San Francisco Bay, it was sort of followed like it was the Bronco chase. And when everybody disembarked, nothing really happened. And I just thought that was very odd, but, you know, kind of went about it. We hadn't locked down or anything. I think about 10 days later or so, the Imperial College uh, out of London had released their model predicting in a do-nothing scenario uh, 2.2 million Americans would die and we would have on our worst uh, day a tenfold shortfall in ICUs. And the best case scenario was a threefold shortfall in ICUs. So I thought to myself, that just seems really strange because nothing really happened on the cruise ships, nothing, nothing major. So I took the model inputs and applied it to the demographics in those two cruise ships. If you apply their model inputs, we should have had 155 deaths on the cruise ships 
and we had 10. And so that was, uh, then, it was then that I knew this thing wasn't going to end up where the model was predicting. It just couldn't. It just would have happened. We would have ended up with higher numbers on the cruise ship, higher fatality numbers. When we locked down and 40 million people became unemployed, that connected to the other books that I'd written in the past, and it, it sort of put me over the edge to just, I, I mean, I, I really just woke up on a Monday morning and, and decided to write this thing. And, uh, and it, it did take a lot of research, but uh, uh, it's a data analysis, right? It's not a book about um, the virus itself or the, the, uh, the medical side of it. It's basically uh, an analysis of the risk and consequence of this. What is the health, health risk of um, COVID-19 versus the consequences of the lockdowns? And the readers can decide for themselves. Obviously, <laughs> my position is we've gone way, way overboard uh, on this. Yeah, you know, as for some reason, whenever I book these shows, I never know, you know, who I'm going to get, when I'm going to get them. But the good Lord is always looking out for me. And we always end up with a, a, a single topic that goes through the whole show that runs the single theme. So we've been talking about, you know, the cancel culture, the lockdowns, the changing face of America from different points of view. Um, so I'm glad that I, I was able to get your book and, and speed read it because <laughs> I only got it for a few days. A few days before doing the show here, uh, but it gave me a lot of information uh, that a lot of it that I was aware of and I had forgotten, uh, but also a lot of new information. And it should actually, you know, make people really think about, you know, what is going on here, um, because do we really need to have the lockdown? You've got some states where they say, uh, like California, uh, so many people can be in your house at the same time. Everyone has to wear a mask while they're inside the home. You know, so many, so many of these strangest things, especially around the holidays. And no science you know, around if, any of this, by the way, Annie. And by the way, if, if someone like Governor Newsom, by the way, that list is about 20 or 30 right now of of uh, government leaders that have deviated or violated their own policies. But if someone like Dr. Burks uh, or, or from the um, coronavirus task force team who's now resigned, um, if Governor Newsom, if, and the list, that list is very long, uh, Governor Pritzker is another one, Governor Whitmer in Michigan, if they believed that this was a real health risk, they wouldn't be doing these deviated things. They would be staying in their house and be hunkered down. What you see is they really don't believe it. They just don't believe it. Uh, or they wouldn't be, they, they wouldn't be acting and, and doing uh, the activities that they, they're doing that, that they get caught at. So if I can highlight one irrefutable nugget of information out of this thing. Right now we are at, since the pandemic started, we've had about 13% excess deaths. So you sort of take your average of about 3 million people, uh, a little less than that, that die every year in America, uh, tack on 13% of that, and that's about where we ended up last year, or that was our run rate from March on through the pandemic, through the end of the year. Um, when you look at different states, we've got a handful of states that are very open, right? Florida, very open. The Dakotas, very open. Uh, Georgia, a little bit, you know, a couple other states. If lockdowns work, if masking works, if putting restrictions on businesses works, the states that have restrictions should be far, far outperforming the uh, open areas, open states like Florida and South Dakota, like 
like South, I mean, like South Florida, for example, you know, let's take it away. It's, it's fairly isolated. It's not near getting infiltrated from the mask gear, you know, that kind of thing up in Northern Florida. They should be blowing up in COVID activity right now if all these mitigation tactics work. The Dakotas, they should be getting crushed right now in COVID activity compared to their surrounding states. It just isn't the case. They're all within 3 or 4% in excess deaths for the year. All those states, all the one, I mean, about 35 of those states, 30, probably even closer to 40. Again, it, it, it invalidates these strict measures. Um, if we would have done nothing, nothing at all, but do a completely competent job, which I, is no easy task, by the way, of insulating our assisted living facilities and long-term care facilities, uh, because over half of our deaths have come from those places. The official number is 39%, but don't believe it. That number is well over 50%. Um, if we'd have done a good job of protecting that and done nothing else, we would have had 150,000 fewer deaths this, over the last, um, you know, since March, since this thing started. You know, it, it's amazing. It, it's panic attack. And I think the media uh, actually fueled it. You know, if it leads, no it leads. So their ratings are going down, spiraling down. So how do you bring the ratings back up? Make the public dependent upon you, which is what people have done. Yeah, I mean, the media, uh, you know, I, I, my, guess is I, my guess is media coverage was doing fairly well back in March of last year. You know, you had, you're coming off the impeachment and heading into uh, an election season. So from a news perspective, they had plenty of stuff to talk about. I do believe there's a thirst. You know, I wrote a chapter about this called Dirty Laundry. I believe there's a thirst for dirty laundry in the media. And the media has, has consistently reported on uh, things like um, the case numbers, which is really a ridiculous number. Like if you're reporting on case numbers without associated hospitalizations uh, and deaths, you know, kind of real-time data, you don't know what you're talking about on this. So you, you've kind of got that part of it, reporting on cases and sort of the hype on it. But how many you, – you would have to follow the news closely to do what you do. How many stories have you seen uh, in the mainstream, the, the very large media outlets or cable news uh, – how many of you seen on what's happened to our kids with education um, or what's happened to small businesses? I mean, very many. No, Michael. no, you don't. If you any at all, go ahead, Curtis. Michael, and, and I would like to also address this to Dr. South since he's still on, if that's possible. How long do you think this um, coronavirus um, lockdown is going to go before? It just completely bankrupt a lot of cities and states in these lockdown states. Uh, you're asking me, Michael? Yeah, you and yeah. we have another guest that's still on the line, Dr. Sal well, Georgiani. Dr. Dr. Sal has been muted, so let me unmute him. So, Michael, you answer, then we'll see if Dr. Sal wants to chime in. Sure. So my answer to this is it was a very big game-changing comment. Big game-changing comment that uh, Governor Cuomo made a couple of days ago, kind of suggesting that we can't just wait for the vaccines. We're going to have to, uh, to open things up. Uh, I think that the vaccines is going to be a game-changer. I do. Uh, I think two reasons. One, the real reason, the health reason, uh, benefits. 
of protecting those that are vulnerable. Um, and more, I think it's going to be the ticket out, both both kind of from a reality perspective and from a saving face perspective, to uh, to get things back to normal. So I think the school year gone. The school year is over for most kids. The vast majority. We've got over 35 million kids not in school. Their their year's over. It's January. No plans to go back from for high school kids and stuff. That's over. Uh, small businesses, I think you'll see things, restrictions start to lighten up. We're going to get milder weather, which will force people, uh, push people outdoors. That'll, that'll quiet the spread of this. And candidly, a lot of people are infected. We have 100, 150 million people that have been infected. All that's going to quiet down the activity of it by March. My guess is mid-second quarter, things will start to unwind, and by summer into fall, things will start to normalize. Uh, that's, just, that's my opinion. Yeah, you know, I've been listening to your commentary, Michael. It's an excellent comments you're providing. Uh, I do agree with you about timing. If we are able to, again, accelerate the vaccination rates the way that we need to and people accept the vaccines the way they must, uh, then I think we will see a lot of relief by, oh, you know, December Certainly next Thanksgiving, I think it'll be not quite back to normal. Uh, People still need to be careful because we still have an awful lot of travel from overseas. And that's that's part of the dilemma you face in a city such as New York, uh, Los Angeles, uh, uh, Miami, where you have a lot of travelers coming from overseas in places where you uh, might not quite get to that population immunity levels that you need to. So I think part of when we can fully open up is going to be dependent on establishing criteria. And I, I'm almost afraid to say it, uh, but I think it's the prudent thing to do criteria that people who are vaccinated can enter the country and people who aren't uh, or have no proof of vaccination or no proof of carrying the virus shouldn't be allowed to enter the country uh, and not to keep the country as an island, but to make sure that we protect the herd immunity that we have. Uh, Again, the issue of viral evolutions and mutations in countries where they might not be uh, so successfully vaccinating and getting to population immunity is is a big issue. And WHO has said that don't look to until 2022, sorry, yeah, 2022, to see vaccines being uh, commonplace in third world countries and underdeveloped countries. So I think we still need some level of caution. It won't be what we're seeing now, but uh, we still need some level of caution and uh, restrictions. Well, you know, I want to point out, I used to own a travel agency back in the late 70s, 80s, and it used to be that when you sent people overseas, uh, whether it's to Africa, to Europe, or to Asia, each country had a certain requirement for a visa and vaccinations. So prior to making your trip, you had to make sure you had your vaccinations up to date, your passport stamped with them, proof that you had these vaccinations. Somewhere along the way in the late 80s, early 90s, they did away with that. Because at that point, we've conquered measles and uh, scarlet fever and whooping cough. So we as Americans weren't all that worried about it. 
But I think we may have to get back to something like that once again, where if someone's going to come, as you said, doctor, into the United States, uh, well, you're going to need a visa. So we know how long you're going to stay and making sure you got a ticket to leave. Um, and you're going to have to have certain vaccinations before you can enter. I, I think we're going to have to go back to old school. Yeah. And my wife and I took a trip in 2018 into the Amazon, a cruise uh, trip, wonderful experience. Uh, but we had to get yellow fever vaccinations. Uh, so, yes, there, there are still now for endemic diseases that are severe endemic diseases. And we had to take our preventative, uh, you know, hydroxychloroquine, uh, that very controversial drug that everybody who travels to the Amazon takes, uh, if they're smart. Uh, so, yeah, I, I do think it's a prudent thing to do. Again, the well-intended policymakers who apply reasonable policies for reasonable re- for appropriate reasons, uh, that harms no one. But it's when the policies become overly restricted that you're ending up in scenarios that Michael has written about where the lockdowns are to the point where they make no sense. Well, you know, Michael, I'm going to toss a little monkey wrench in here because now we've got the people that are anti-vaxxers. You've got the individuals such as myself and my husband that we have underlying health issues that would probably prevent us from getting the vaccinations. So now we have also the cancel culture, like, oh, my goodness, you've got the cooties. Don't come anywhere near me. You can't enter government buildings. You can't do this, can't do that, because you did not take the vaccination. So are, is our society going to be like that, or are we going to still be a freedom-loving society, Michael? Uh, it appears it's, it's I, I mean, you know, time will bear this out. I mean, if you'd have asked me, I told all my friends back in April, hey, this thing's going to unwind by May 1st. The data isn't supporting it. Hospitals are never going to get overwhelmed. I mean, they might, which they haven't. Other than um, when the virus hits, you have these pockets of intense um, hospitalizations in a handful of places. That's very, that is very true. Um, but by and large, you know, we're, we've got uh, a third of our hospital beds free right now nationwide uh, in ICUs. So the answer to your question is, my answer is, uh, I think we are moving down to an immunity passport type of an environment. Um, I think freedoms and liberties are out the window. That, that's clear. After 10 months of, of what's happened in most of these large states, that's gone, right? I mean, I live in Texas, which is a, you know, more conservative than not, certainly a conservative-led state. Our kids are not in school. Most of them are not in class. Most of them are learning remote. These guys are not messing around. So I think that my advice, honestly, is that liberties, civil liberties, um, freedoms, out the window. It's, you know, we're negotiating how to reopen at this point. Take the vaccine, wear a mask, and maybe we'll probably open everything up. It's almost like we've been put in solitary confinement, and your standards, uh, the, your standards go down for uh, for what you would be willing to compromise just to get out. That is really where we are. So, I do think we're probably getting into a place, uh, particularly with this administration coming in. And I'm not taking a political angle. I just think that's reality the way they're talking. Uh, I think I think we are moving down that path, Annie. Well, you know, I thankfully led to the state of South Carolina from New York. Uh, so we're pretty much pretty open. Um, our schools, depending upon the school district, 
they're open half of the, the week and then at home half the week. But there's a huge consequence to doing schooling in this where I'm sure, Dr. Sally, you could attest to it. You know, the development of the child is going to be severely restricted. A lot of these kids are at least a year or two behind now in learning. Yep. Since they're not in the classroom mm-hmm. every day, five days a week, they lose some of that learning. They actually regress a grade in some two grades. Uh, so it's going to be like a whole generation that we're going to lose in education as well as emotional development. So there is a real consequence to these lockdowns. Yeah, and then I'm going to have to leave in a few minutes. I've got another appointment coming up. But, yeah, the American Academy of Pediatrics, who are certainly experts in managing things of ch- elementary school and high school age, they said way back sometime around April, May, or June that we need to be getting students back into the classrooms, and there are ways to do that, as you said, maybe split schedules, uh, part uh, offline, uh, online learning, part in-person learning uh, with proper social distancing from the teachers primarily uh, because the kids, remember, they, their immune systems can handle this, this virus pretty well. Most of them are asymptomatic, even if they are carriers. So they came out with a standard saying that we should get the kids back to school. And, you know, you're talking about a scenario of an entire year maybe a year and a half of suboptimal socialization and education and support. But that's for the, that's the average student. We do have other students who are challenged. Uh, we have students who are not necessarily uh, intellectually challenged, but who uh, struggle in school. Students, uh, children who struggle with socialization, uh, struggle even with uh, meals, nutrition, which we talked about in the earlier segment as being important for being able to fight this virus or whatever might come down the line. So I I think that we need to get them back into schools uh, or some way of allowing children to intermingle under supervision so that they re-socialize. This is a fact that might last, and one of the programs Men's Health Network did was on the uh, emotional and behavioral health issues that have faced boys and men from COVID. It's almost like post-COVID traumatic stress disorder. These kids have been traumatized by all of this, and that's going to last them well into their very fragile teenage years. And teenagers, where they're going through this other period of resocialization into into adulthood, it's going to dramatically affect them as well. So there's a long chain of consequences to the isolation that I think uh, we're unfortunately not prepared to address no, that would not. And Michael, you want to take that? Well, yeah, I, I actually want to hit it even. I mean, I agree with all those comments, and, and to, to hit it a little bit more between the eyes, there is not one one data point, statistical data point, that suggests that kids shouldn't be completely back to school without social distancing and without masks. There's not a data point that exists. How do we know that? Because we have tons and tons of examples around the world of them already doing it in infected places. In Western Europe, we've got some classrooms that have that situation where the kids aren't social distancing nor are required to wear masks in America. You would know this, by the way, without even doing a Google search. You would know this because it would be billboarded across the media. How many outbreaks have been associated uh, that have resulted in hospitalizations or deaths 
associated or as a byproduct of schools being open, kids in class? I'll ask anybody on this call right now. Well, Dr. Sal had to run, so his call has dropped. But there's there's a lot of consequences to these kids not being in school because you got to also remember those teachers and social workers and counselors and educators, whatever you want to call them, in the schools are the very first ones to notice if there's something wrong with the child, right. whether it's through domestic abuse, bullying, no um, learning disabilities. So they do so much more work than just teaching the kids the ABCs. And they can help stop a situation before it even comes out of hand. So without these kids being viewed outside of their home, outside of the, whatever influence is, is harming right. the child, no, no doubt. I actually didn't know the extent of that either until I researched it, and so that was in that was in one of the I, I did a deep dive into that in one of those chap in one of the chapters in the book, and and it was a learning experience for me. Um, but to go back to the question, it was rhetorical that I asked. There's not a, a situation anywhere in the world where kids are back to school normal, face to face, teachers are in class, that's resulted in. Um, some kind of outbreak that's resulted in, not cases. Cases mean nothing if people aren't getting sick, nothing. And so if, if there's just not a situation associated with schools, even universities, of people getting hospitalized and dying from this. And yet, it, it's, it's, Annie, it's like the twilight zone. I mean, I just thought, how is data going to emerge out of this with some critical thinking? It's crazy. Well, you know, and also – begs to wonder how much is it where the progressives are trying to train us, especially training the kids young, that when government tells you you have to behave in XYZ manner, you must adhere. I, I, maybe it's another form of indoctrination by making them say, hey, wait a minute, um, this virus went around and we were told we had to wear masks, we had to stay six feet apart. We got to listen to what they say, and there, as you said, goes our freedoms and liberties. Well, hey, between listen, I, you know, you're talking about indoctrinating kids. I'm indoctrinated. I'm on board. I believe it now. I wouldn't have believed it a few months ago, but I don't. I believe that the government could actually could absolutely do this. You've got the social media uh, lashes uh, uh, um, out at at some of the conservative, you know, kind of dissenting or whatever, you know, uh, President Trump, all the stuff you already know about. So you've got social media companies that are just banning things like Parler and any kind of dissenting views. You've got governments that are locking down many, many states. Their citizens where data doesn't support it. By the way, I'm on board now. I'm a believer. I am afraid. You want to know the truth? I'm afraid. <laughs> um, I mean, I don't feel like somebody's going to come into my house and it's going to be like Venezuela or something, but um, this has been an incredibly evolutionary year. We are in a different country than we were a year ago. Well, you know, I got to admit, today um, I had a really hard time technology-wise with getting the show up and running. And matter of fact, I was not even able to do the video like I normally do because I'd have your face playing up there as we're doing the interview, and that crashed on me completely. So I managed to get up on Facebook Live. And I just got kicked off of Facebook, and I'm wondering if someone, when they went through the description of the show, saw the name of your book, COVID-19, Lockdown on Trial, and they said, oh, no, 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 bad girl. You can't have anything about COVID-19 on Facebook. Uh, I had, even here on Blog Talk Radio, I got kicked out the first 15 minutes of the show. So you're wondering how many are out there trolling 
for these algorithms, these little code words that are saying, oh, oh, here we go. We've got to punish this person. Uh, yeah, it could be significant. I, it, it could be. I think some of it, you know, you look at, I'm sure you know who Alex Berenson is. Uh, and so Alex wrote, uh, do you know who that is? Honestly, no, I don't. Okay, so Alex Berenson, uh, he, he sort of became the face of, of this um, uh, anti-lockdown, uh, um, you know, I'd say movement, but whatever. But uh, back, this was back in March when he was kind of sharing some reality data that really nobody else was. And so he ended up on Fox News a number of times and, and um, One American News and Newsmax, uh, and his Twitter feed went crazy. And he wrote a book on the lockdowns, self-published it, um, a little booklet, and on June 4th it was blocked, uh, and and he put a lot of media pressure on it, and eventually Amazon relented actually the same day. Mine got blocked by Amazon too. But they blocked a ton of COVID books at that time. When I say a ton, I mean about about six or eight, and, and not a ton. <laughs> and uh, and I think that, that the media, uh, Amazon at that time, was there was still some genuine fear about you know, we don't want to get disinformation out there. Now it's clear this thing's wide open, right? I mean, we all know what the data is. I mean, I'm not sharing uh, particular insight. I've got opinions and, you know, perhaps trying to be persuasive about it, but the data exists out there if anybody wants to go find it. I, I put it all in one place. Uh, uh, so it is interesting that, that a company like Facebook would do that. Clearly Twitter's doing it. Twitter's killed off. Uh, Twitter's removed a number of people uh, that have data sharing capabilities uh, or interests like mine, they've, they've taken their accounts away in the last couple of weeks. And that's been very interesting. I mean, these are people that I know because we all kind of, um, you know, follow each other and share data. And so it's, a, it's an interesting time. It is, it is. And it's funny because I didn't go up on Parler that often because I always had a problem with my sign-in. But I had been a member since 2017. And recently I had a bad car accident where my phone was completely destroyed and I was not able to put Parler back up on my phone, so I couldn't even get back on. Uh, but it's, it's amazing how these social media mega giants can determine what free speech is. It's free speech for me, but not for thee. So right. they can Very be, true. be free to say anything. Yeah, so you get YouTube's with ISIS showing how to behead someone. But the second you turn around and you talk about COVID or uh, if you talk about cancel culture uh, or you talk about your Christianity, oh, no, no, it's really bad. It's gotten so bad, TV is satellite. I've got Dish Network. And right within hours of the uh, siege at the Capitol, I just wanted to turn the news off, and I wanted to put on a little gospel just to calm my soul down. Do you know what? I could not find any gospel music on any of the, the uh, channels. I couldn't even find any religion preaching on any of the channels. It went down. That is how bad it's gotten. Yeah, you know, the sad thing is, I mean, if you go back in time, you might have, I mean, way back in time, you'd have very staunch conservatives. I don't mean Republicans. I just mean people that were very rigid and conservative. And so let's say that those were, and those could have been Democrats too. I just mean the individuals, that line of thinking. And so they might've been um, against civil rights, right? They might've been. And so you, you've got a, um, 
uh, it took a bit of, of contrarian thinking to open us up, right? Free speech and civil rights and, and, uh, and you know, many other things. Uh, and what we've done is the group that traditionally has those constituents and benefits benefited from that. They've, they've swung the other way to put a tight rein on this. And it's, it's, um, uh, you know, Breitbart makes a joke. They always call them the masters of the universe. But, uh, I mean, Annie, you've got a handful of people with enormous world power right now. Uh, and uh, and it's, 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 it's quite a time right now. It is. It's very frightening. And uh, I still have a tea party. And um, earlier in the show I had read an email I sent out to all of our members and basically telling them, you know, I can understand if you want to step back because, you know, we are not only uh, in jeopardy for losing our jobs, um, our family members, we're also in jeopardy of fiscal assault. So we're going to take a little bit of a step back. And we'll let things calm down, but we're not going to stop the fight. We've got to still be able to defend our liberties in this republic. But we've got to do it in a smart manner where we don't have, like they had the siege at the Capitol. And, you know, this is what bothers me. Because Trump was still on the platform talking, I think up until almost 1.30 in the afternoon. Yet the Capitol was breached two hours prior. So can you explain to me how he... had an insurrection and, and caused a riot when he didn't turn around and say, let's march to the Capitol. Uh, let's go down and march to in front of the Capitol two hours later. And I, I don't understand yeah. that. Yeah. I mean, Trump's Trump's real, I mean, Trump's biggest shortcoming for all the things he accomplished is uh, one, he's given no slack by the media on things and he's, his communication style is a little coarse and a little loose. It just is. Um, so you get the benefit of some of the groundbreaking stuff that he accomplished. And, you, and with that, you get that same type of personality uh, steps in it a lot and, uh, and isn't necessarily quick to you know, apologize. And nothing you don't already know, right? Uh, and so there's, there's really a tale of two Trumps there. And, but you've got the media that is you know, certainly not the mainstream media outlets. And you look at you know, Facebook, so many, so many tens of millions of people get their uh, news from Facebook, not from cable news. Cable news is actually only two percent. Two percent of Americans get their information from cable news. Much higher on online, uh, and so if some of that information is getting filtered, you're getting, you know, you're not getting balanced about Trump, uh, about some of those things. So it's just, uh, it's just going to be, it's going to be a wild year. I think that, um, I think that when it comes to things like uh, the vaccine, to the point you made, if you've, you know a decision between you and your doctor that it's not the right thing to do, that could be a very legitimate, I mean, that's, that's, you know, that's a real decision you need to make. For most Americans, my advice is to um, not hold down on the civil liberties thing. If you're not at risk of COVID, you're probably not, you know, less risk of, the, of uh, taking the vaccine. Take it and let's move on. This is not a battle we're going to win this year. No, we have to know which ones to pick and when to pick them. And that, that's a problem we have. We don't have a unified front right now in our party, in the political parties. So, you know, if we don't have a unified front, how are we going to win any battle? We have to find a way in which to find that common ground and pick the right battle. Yeah, you know, I want to even add on to that. But when, you, when you're talking about parties, so my comment would apply to... Are you there? Annie? Annie? 
Annie? Can you hear Annie? me? This is the co-host. I can hear you now. All right. Apparently, Annie was dropped out, but she will be back <laughs> on. So go ahead and continue what you were saying. Sure. So I think it's not just the – the. Um, you know, the blue states that are, that are having some of these tight restrictions and that, you know, we need to take it or else. I think that it's, it's across the board. It's many states. Ohio has been, you know, pretty rigid about some of their restrictions. And, and I don't feel like Texas has been great. You know, other states, the Dakotas, Oklahoma, they've been more relaxed. But this is not just a Democrat-led versus Republican-led state. This, this whole um, sort of holding everybody hostage for the vaccines or immunizations, uh, that's, that's a real across nearly all states and that's why i think it's just so important that we um get on board with the vaccinations uh if you are under 80 under 75 um you you know you'd be at very little risk and if you're above that you should probably consult with your doctor it seems like there's been some second dosage hiccups with uh or side effects uh, associated with some of those vaccines hopefully the johnson and johnson vaccine that comes out uh in the coming weeks uh, gets approved, uh, and it seems like a simpler and probably more effective vaccine. That would be a good thing for us all, and that is mm-hmm. the only way I see us ushering out of this. Now, there's a lot of people I know personally who are hesitant about taking the vaccine, and if you can remember, um, Kamala Harris once said that um, she wouldn't take the vaccine wouldn't advise anybody to take it because she didn't trust anything that came out of the Trump administration. Uh, do you think, you know, that may have something to do with it when it comes to those who are, are Democrats and they remember, you know, statements like that and they're hesitant because of the fear that's been instilled in them about the virus and about the vaccination? Well, I, I doubt it now because you've got a new administration in. Joe Biden's taken the vaccine. Kamala Harris, I believe she's taken it too. Uh, and they're, they're fully embracing and getting on board with us. Making statements like that are so crazy, right? I mean, it's not like President Trump was ever sitting in the lab. By the way, or anybody in Washington was sitting in a lab when Pfizer and Moderna were coming up with these vaccines. In fact, Moderna came up with theirs almost a year ago. They developed the, the core of it in a, in a weekend, I think in February or something. And uh, and so I hope that isn't the case. I don't believe it. I believe the Democrats uh, and Republicans, I think all the politicians are on board with getting, taking the vaccine. My advice based on all the science that's come out so far is if you are not in an at-risk category and you have the chance to take it, take it. If you're in an at-risk category, you should talk to your doctor about it. The side effects could be somewhere between mild and and adverse, and that's just a discussion everybody should have with their doctor. And how many vaccine types do we have out there now on the market? Is it just one? or Because I heard there were several, you know, um, pharmaceutical companies that were working on vaccines. Curtis, can uh, you hear me now? Can you hear me yes. now? Yes. I got yep, completely kicked you. off. I got compl- I had right now even trying to go through my soundboard I can't even so I have to do old school but I believe there's a total of four companies out there that have a vaccine that they're currently uh, distributing. Oh, so I okay. I I thought ahead, it was Michael. two that are in market right now Moderna and Pfizer Johnson and Johnson and the other one uh, I forgot the name of the the, the fourth one because I, I don't think it's out in America yet. Um, uh, 
uh, there's one I know out of there's Moderna, Pfizer, AstraZeneca. That's and, AstraZeneca's the fourth one, along with Johnson and Johnson. If there's right. another one, there's one in China that's efficacy rates seem like it's fairly low uh, compared to the other ones. But um, it seems like the Johnson and Johnson uh, uh, vaccine, assuming it gets the trials, should be released within uh, trial data in two or three weeks. Uh, if that goes well, uh, it seems like that has a shot at being the best one. You know, single dose doesn't require super cold temperatures to uh, to store and transport, things like that. So uh, that's all positive. Uh, but I, I, listen, my advice is, again, like I said, if you're uh, – check with your doctor, but if, if, it, if uh, you and your doctor decide that it's uh, safe based on the data that we know, take it and let's move on. Don't take a civil liberty stance on this one. It will not work. <laughs> No, but you also have now have the situation like up in New York where they're throwing out the virus, these vaccines, because they're not being used in the prescribed time because you have to keep it in the temperature control. It's got an expiration date, but they're not distributing it to people. And the ones that they need to distribute it to, if they if the hospital turns around and says, well, listen, I'm going to need it for the first responders, the hospital gets fined because the Lord and Master is sitting at, City Hall and up in Albany has determined, no, 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 these people aren't going to get it first. Someone else is. It, it, well, it makes no sense the way they're doing it. So we've done a much – look, the the, uh, the rollout by the states in the – most states, the vast majority of states uh, in December was completely dismal. I feel like they were caught flat-footed. They, uh, they had a long time to prepare for what this rollout was going to look like, and most of them were caught flat-footed and they, they just did a poor job. There's just no other way to say it. It was, it was abysmal. And it was largely lined up with the states with the tightest lockdowns did the worst jobs in December. Michigan was terrible, one of the slowest starting states. Um, New York was terrible. California is still terrible. Uh, states that are doing great, the Dakotas are doing great. Florida's got almost coming up on 10% of their elderly population will be vaccinated. Uh, I mean, Texas has moved a mountain. So they're, some of the states are doing really well. Louisiana is doing great. Connecticut's doing great. Blue State, Connecticut's doing really well. Uh, but overall, very, very soft rollout. Uh, and you've got states that are blaming governors, blaming the federal government. You, you would have to be crazy to believe that the federal government would have the resources to coordinate and engineer a 50-state rollout of a vaccine. That is just insane. And it's just skirting responsibility. And thank goodness we've got a number of, of um, states that, that have done a good job. And I think we're getting into a rhythm now. We're actually making a lot of progress. States that were very slow, they're doing much better. I think by the end of January, you're going to see some real traction on this. We've got about 3%, I think, of our population that's been vaccinated so far, um, something like that. It's, uh, I mean, the numbers are you know, varied by the day, but, uh, but we're, we're making progress. Yeah, because uh, here in South Carolina, I think Governor Masters is doing a great job. He kept us semi-open throughout the whole thing. There was no full lockdowns. Uh, he's been getting the, the vaccine out distributed. And as I said earlier to Dr. Sal that, you know, my husband is over 70. I've got an 88-year-old mother with me, uh, both underlying health conditions. But I was getting bombarded uh, through emails, phone calls, to uh, say the vaccine's here. Here are the numbers. You make the appointment to get the vaccine. The nearest one is here. If you can't make it, you've got X, Y, Z. There are other options for you, but simply pick up the phone call, phone and make the call. Uh, they, they are be, being very, very aggressive in the distribution of it. 
Did I get dropped again? Can you hear me? You're still there. Uh, all right. Did Michael drop? He's still up in the um, up on the switchboard. I'm, I'm telling you, I, we're being attacked. I've never seen this show attacked so much. And it looks like our next guest is calling in on the line. So I'm just going to leave Michael's phone open, and hopefully if he's still there, he can uh, join us. But oh, this no. looks like it may be Joel Griffith from Heritage. Good afternoon, Joel. How are you today? Hey, good afternoon. Doing well. How about you? I am having one of those days. I've got kicked out of my show now four four or five times, Curtis. I mean, I, I totally kicked out. Right now I'm doing it old school. I can't even use my mixer board because I guess oh, the no. subject is COVID-19 and lockdowns and uh, <laughs> uh, um, cancel culture. I, yeah, I'm telling it's been you, quite a ride. It's been quite geez, a ride today. The only other time I ever had this show attacked and knocked out that many times is when I discussed China. I guess, Joel, you know, I, I, I should feel honored that I'm being attacked by the trolls so heavy today. That sounds like you're having quite the afternoon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, man. And you've been writing about, you know, the COVID hypocrisy, you know, how the policymakers have one policy compared to, you know, everyone else. And I would say New York State is the perfect example, and they just – Every single time I, I, I turn on the news, Governor Cuomo and Mayor de Blasio have another stunt they're doing. And I, I, just, I just shake my head. I, I, it's like you want to turn the news off and watch the Andy Griffith Mayberry show. <laughs> well, New York has had a time of it, particularly uh, New York City. And uh, the governor, of course, the Emmy Award-winning Governor Cuomo, um, his leadership uh, has left a lot to be desired. And I think I'm being very generous with that. Of course, early on in this crisis, uh, the governor mandated that assisted living centers um, take in patients that were known to be COVID positive. Of course, a lot of lives were were lost. The the vulnerable were not protected in that state. And now you've had uh, nearly a year of, of shutdowns. Some of the shutdowns in New York have been blatantly unconstitutional. The courts have ruled as such, or even religious gatherings were banned, while, of course, uh, protests were actually promoted and, and cheered. But the hypocrisy has been uh, utterly appalling. If you, uh, I don't know if you had a chance to, to see New Year's Eve in Times Square. Not many people were allowed to attend, but Mayor de Blasio was there with his wife, Dancing. and they had a, a, a wonderful dance. And yeah. I think it's great. I think it's it's wonderful to celebrate on New Year's Eve with with other people. There's nothing wrong with that. But when you're a mayor and you're prohibiting under penalty of law and imprisonment other people from celebrating the New Year, and yet you go out to Times Square and have a jolly old time, that is absolutely uh, hypocritical. And that's just I mean, one of many dozens uh, of examples across the country that we've been tracking. But then again, you got to remember uh, that uh, Governor Cuomo is the one who created that wonderful poster to show how well he responded to the COVID virus. And he had a mountain and had all these people up around the mountains to show the trip and everything else. And he put it up on the official governor's website. And he was selling it for $20, and that $20 was going into his campaign finance fund. Gee, isn't that in violation of campaign finance laws? Yeah, I'm not sure as to the legality, but it is appalling. That is uh, that is for sure. And yeah, at the time that Governor Cuomo was 
uh, uh, imposing strict travel guidelines on the state. But even if you go into New York City, you're supposed to fill out paperwork in the state of New York about where you've come from. But uh, back in uh, July, uh, he took a, a trip to uh, to Georgia, down to Savannah, beautiful place. I recommend everybody go and travel to some of these uh, wonderful vacation destinations. But he's the governor telling other people, don't travel, stay at home, cancel your vacation plans. And yet he goes ahead and takes a, a pleasant trip uh, to uh, the, 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 the balmy countryside of the, the Georgia seacoast. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, it's funny. My sister moved in here a couple of months ago from Albany. And when she finally got her Georgia plates, she was so happy. She rushed over to my home. I'm just over the border in South Carolina. She rushed over and she gets the screwdriver out of my toolbox and she changes her license plate and she's dancing. She's happy. No more New York license plates. <laughs> you, you know, it's, it's bitterly ironic uh, if you, you know, go to South Florida especially and just start talking to people. Hey, where are you from? How long have you been here? Um, you know, Florida has been a home for 60 years now to people escaping from the island to the south. Uh, Cuba, which is ruled by by a regime that doesn't allow you to operate businesses, tramples on your civil rights, and and that they've been a home, home to many people like that. But now, uh, you're just as likely, it seems, to talk to people that are fleeing from another island. This one's in the north, called Manhattan. Yeah, fleeing a regime that is trampling on civil rights and trampling on the rights to own and operate a business. Uh, it, it's uh, it's it's sad, but uh, it's home now to refugees from Manhattan and Cuba. Well, yeah, upstate New York, Long Island, um, New Jersey. We're getting a lot from New Jersey down here. Um, it's funny because when my husband and I used to travel back and forth to Florida because his sister was down there, uh, we called it Southern New York. <laughs> it's the simple truth. When we moved to South Carolina 21 years ago, um, the first thing I put on my car was a bumper sticker saying, we don't give a damn how you did it up north. But this is the hypocrisy of the liberal left. It, it's rules for me, uh, rules for thee, but not for me. Oh, you, yeah, yeah, you know, you're so right. Well, there's, there's another story that comes to mind, this one out of California. Uh, following the election in November, there were a lot of new legislators to the assembly, and they did a group picture, and they made such a point of making sure that everybody was socially distanced and that they were wearing masks, and they took the picture. Wonderful. Well, when they thought the cameras were off, they most a lot of them went out to dinner together. <laughs> in a state that, that is trying to ban dinner. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, and, that, of course, uh, I think the, that's a less-known story, but then the, the one that made waves a few weeks ago was Governor Newsom, who has tried to shutter dining experiences across the state. Um, he thought he was getting away with it. He went out to dinner at a $500 per plate French restaurant with some of his friends. And once again, I think it's great. You should go if you go out to dinner with your friends, have dinner parties. You, you should engage and interact with people. But the problem with him was that he was actually trying to make that – he was trying to criminalize that for everybody else. And yet he thought uh, it would be a good idea for him to get together with his friends when the cameras weren't on. Well, it turns out the cameras were on, and, uh, and now, now we know. <laughs> or wasn't it in the L.A. area that one a salon owner that she finally put the chairs outside on the sidewalk so she can cut people's hairs? But shortly after that, Nancy Pelosi shows up in her salon with no mask and no social distancing. So, you know, again, rules for thee, but not for me. Yeah, it's very reminiscent of George Orwell's Animal Farm. Uh, if you remember one of the the, the sayings in that book, uh, an animal farm was uh, all animals are equal. But 
some animals are more equal than others. And I think you could apply the same as now. We say all of us are equal under the law, but apparently some are more equal than others, uh, alluding to the political elite class. Yeah, it's amazing how George Orwell, individuals like that, could foresee the way our society would be going. Uh, Ayn Rand, if you look at the way the lockdowns are in in some way, Ayn Rand was correct in Atlas Shrugged when she said, basically, in order to preserve yourself, you're going to have to separate yourself from the rest of society in order to preserve our part of society. Yeah. Yeah, and unfortunately, these examples aren't limited just to the the, the, the blue states. Um, we even see this in places in Texas. There's a judge in Fort Worth, Judge Whitley. Um, he was telling others not to host parties, and then he chose to host a large Thanksgiving dinner. I, it's it's just the it, it really blows the mind. And once again, I'm I'm not saying you shouldn't have dinners. I, I was really happy to celebrate Thanksgiving with uh, six different households in my extended family. Um, but I'm not out there telling people cancel your Thanksgiving plans. Here you have another this time a judge telling other people don't have Thanksgiving dinner with your extended family, and then he goes off and does that very thing. Uh, it, it's amazing. Now, um, you're a research fellow at the Rowe Institute at the Heritage Foundation, and you've got some really great um, on the Heritage Foundation. And one of the things I wanted to talk about is this idea of cancel culture. Um because I mentioned this a couple of times during today's show that with my own tea party, I had to send an email out saying, you know, I can understand uh, you wanting to step a little bit back, and I recommend doing that until after the inauguration. Let's take a little time to let things calm down. Uh, but even now, doing something like that uh, can still get someone in trouble. I, I'm, a walk, I'm driving around with a Trump bumper sticker, and I'm waiting for someone to break the window on my car. No, I, I hear you. It's a, it's a, a situation now in society where um, even people that are civil have to be um, more cautious in what they say and, and, and how they say it. And I think this, this problem with cancel culture, it doesn't apply just to our allies, even those with whom we, don't dis- with whom we might disagree. There's even people on our side, those on the center right, those that are um, you know, patriotic Americans. Sometimes uh, we're, uh, they're engaged in the same attempt to cancel other people. What we need to be focused on is Speaking up against hate, of course, countering the hate, um, but also trying trying to engage uh, with other people that might not see things the same way. In fact, they might have a radically different, flat-out wrong view um, on things. But um, I think it's incumbent on us to, to do our best, whether it's somebody like yourself with, with such a large platform or the rest of us that have um, friends and, and family that might not see things the same way. We don't have to ignore um, the differences. We don't have to pretend that all of us are right because on some things there, there, there are uh, – there's a right and there's a wrong. But we need to find ways to engage with others and not try to have them banned from the public sphere uh, just because we don't agree with them or like how they are pre- presenting um, their, their viewpoints. And, of course, there are instances of, of hate. We should speak out against hate, uh, condemn the hate. Um, but uh, cancel culture um, has gone too far. Yeah, because now you have people that are, are seen on camera at the Trump rally uh, last Wednesday. And they were not inside the Capitol. They were not people that were part of the siege at the Capitol. They were just present at the rally. And by the time they get home, they find that they have no job. Uh, they'll find that they're being ostracized in their community. Uh, there are real ramifications for very simply uh, being someone that supports Trump. 
Um, yeah, there's a cancel culture is is uh, is is very um, real. Um, and yeah, there, there were uh, a number of people. I mean, the uh, you've probably been down here to the, the the grounds. The National Mall extends for for miles, and yeah, there, there were uh, I'm sure people that were um, un, unaware initially as to what was going on. And once again, uh, we we should be condemning those that um, that engaged in unlawful activity. Um, we you know whether it's people on the right or people on the left, when you engage in disorderly conduct or or worse, um, in this instance. Uh, uh, you know some of those, um, some of the images, some of what we saw, uh, so so troubling. Um, there there are repercussions um, for that. Um, but I think what we're talking about are situations in which somebody has just simply expressed a political viewpoint or um, showed up at at um, an, an event. And there's many of these political events across the country, um, and it's uh, too it's, it's really too bad that some of the first inclination when you see somebody. Um, who is expressing an idea or support for a candidate you don't approve of, um, often the first inclination is to try to ruin that person's personal life or their business life. Um, that's not how we should be engaged in things in the civil society. Let's engage. Let's talk about the differences. Um, by all means, let's, let's have some spirited debate. We need more of that. Um, but our first inclination should not be to try to get that person removed uh, from the public uh, sphere or to – uh, cause a loss of of their livelihood, and I think that goes for even when we're talking about people um, on on the left, um, we we should be engaging them as well. And the first inclination should not be to try to get them banished uh, from uh, you know from from every means of interacting with the public. You know, um, I'd like to try to engage people in conversation, but I always turn around and say, listen, we can agree to disagree when it comes to you know political or social viewpoints. But you are my neighbor, you are my friend, and no matter what, we're going to have an easy conversation. You want to sit down and have a a cocktail together, we'll do that. And I find I can win a lot of people over, and there's a few times I'll have someone that's on the opposite side of the aisle um, looking at something at the TV at the same time I am, and I've done this where I shared bar stools, and they'll look up and, like, they'll make a comment about something going on in the news, and I look at that person and go, see, we do have places where we can agree. We can't find that common ground until we open that dialogue, and this is the problem. You've got extremists on both sides not willing to open the dialogue and not willing to be able to articulate your viewpoint in a way that the other person can easily understand. Now, you're you're so right. Uh, so many, even if they think back to the election season and the primary season, um, the, the level of, of discourse is just not what it used to be in this country. Um, uh, the the bar has been been lowered, and you end up with a lot of personal attacks and hyperbole rather than actually talking about the issues. If you do a compare contrast uh, in the last few presidential elections between the um, between the debates, and then look at something from go back to the 1970s, look at some of these vintage debates between William F. Buckley and Ronald Reagan on policy nuances like the Panama Canal, and you have a substantive debate for an hour over a complex issue. Um, and then compare that to what we see both, you know, it, this isn't, you know, to pick on any one political party. It's both, it's both parties. Look at, look at how we have changed. Um, I think we, we've lost a lot. We've done a disservice to, to ourselves and, and to the country by, by um, being um, less inclined to actually have these deep, lengthy discussions on the issues that matter. It's become all about entertainment and who can lob the, the, the you know, a personal insult at somebody else. Once again, I'm not, 
We're only getting this to one party or the other. We saw um, quite a bit of this in the Democratic presidential primary debates as well. Um, and I, I think that it's, it's time for our political leaders to, um, to, move, to move beyond that and to do better. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But we also have it being the pot being stirred by the media, um, whether it is cable news, print media, uh, radio, or even Internet. Um, they are really stirring the pot because they're losing viewers. The, the people are disengaging, but they got to do something to draw them back. So what's the best thing to do is to stir the pot and turn around and say, there's a panic situation here, so you've got to tune, tune in to me, and yeah. I'm going to tell you what the situation is. Instead of turning around and saying, wait a minute, what's actually happening here? Let me take a little research. No, if it's not done in that 240-character sentence, there's no interest. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a lot of it's about entertainment and, and what you can pack into 30 seconds or 45 seconds of, of a soundbite. Um, that's the, the nature um, of, of the business. Um, and um, I, I know for, for personally, I try to counterbalance that by doing more reading of um, journals, listening to podcasts or reading books to have um, to, to be able to formulate my, my own analysis on some of these issues rather than relying on, on the sound bites. Now, that, I opened up my own local Marxist newspaper, as I call it, the local <laughs> rag, and the top five stories all had to do with Trump inciting the riot last Wednesday. And and they're using those exact words. As, and my husband loves to say, what is the marching order of the day for the left? Because they always use the same exact phrase, whether it's CNN, MSNBC, or any of these other leftist stations. It's the same exact wording. It's as if they get a memo every day on their desk saying, this is today's talking points. These are the keywords. Yeah, well, you know, the the events of the last um, few weeks, I think, have been troubling for for many of us. Um, but what I'm also concerned about is just the the lack of attention that is being given. This is both by Republicans and, and Democrats, many of Republicans and Democrats, uh, on the issues that actually are going to matter long term for us as a people. You know, we've got another multi-trillion dollar spending package that's working its way through Congress this is on top of other spending packages that were supported in a huge bipartisan manner. Well, sometimes this bipartisan consensus is actually very dangerous to our long-term future. Um, and we, we, we have to find a way to get behind beyond the headlines of the day and actually focus on some of these things that are going to have dramatic consequences for us and for our children and for those that don't have children yet for our future children. Um, and it's being ignored by most uh, politicians, uh, we're, we're going to pay for it longer term. Yeah, that's the whole thing. They're not looking down the road to what the consequences are. I mean, it's nice to get these stimulus pack, uh, checks. Oh, I'm sure everyone's very happy to find an extra yes. money in your bank account all of a sudden. But who actually pays for this further down the road? And how is it going to be paid? Well, we already have Joe Biden saying we're going to raise taxes. And as I was talking with an earlier guest who's uh, an economist, um, it's going to spiral. And it's going to be you know, larger cost of goods and services. Uh, it's going to be in, in businesses fleeing the United States, going back to India and China. Uh, we're going to lose that tax base there. And you're not mm -hmm. going to gain a tax base because if you're raising taxes, fewer people are going to be 
able to pay them, it's a huge spiral. Yeah, it um, it really is. I mean, even if we don't see higher taxes, it doesn't mean you're not going to pay for it. We just might not realize we're paying for it. Like you mentioned, uh, higher higher prices. And there's also this um, this problem when you have the government um, borrowing more, printing more, or sometimes taxing more. Um, that is giving the government power to um, determine where limited resources are allocated. And you think about uh, if they go ahead and they just borrow another trillion dollars and that comes into the coffers. Well, that now gives the government control over what those dollars buy. So you've got the government competing with the private sector, with you as an individual, over where the limited resources of our economy are going to be allocated. You're basically able to redistribute income, not necessarily from the rich to the poor even, but from from one part of the economy to the other part. Instead of us as individuals deciding that through our own decisions and our own voluntary um, you know, choices of where we work and what we buy, now you have the bureaucrats in D.C., the politicians in D.C., determining how those resources are allocated. It's a lot of power. And let's never underestimate the, how, how powerful an incentive uh, that is to acquire power. And some, for some people, I think it's even more of a drive than acquiring money um, or possessions, having power over others and over the biggest economy, most powerful economy in the world. Um, we got to keep an eye on that. Oh, power Joel. is very, very seductive. And once you have that power, you are loath to relinquish it. You've got a handful of people controlling our economy at this moment. And where those dollars go, you are right. They've got pet projects in their own districts that they would rather see that money go to rather than you deciding where right. you're going. Oh, yeah. Uh, if you look at uh, you know, after the um, uh, election results became um, uh, more clear, um, look at the, the companies that uh, that, that soared. Um, you had a lot of these green, so-called green energy companies, solar companies that just went up by the double digits almost uh, almost immediately or overnight. Um, well, that's because um, the market understands the power that our politicians have over choosing which are going to be winners and which are going to be the losers. Um, and uh, we, there, there are a few people that stand to gain enormously by this. Joe. Go ahead, Curtis. How, yes. long, how long do you think we can survive as a republic if we don't reform our educational system, which is currently churning out little Marxists and socialists, people who hate well, their we, yeah, well, there's no doubt that um, within the, the public school system, within some districts, there's, there's a big problem with what is being taught. And in some instances, what's not being taught um, are um, the next generation. There is um, really have a lack of, of an understanding with where our values, where our rights come from, the idea that our rights are inalienable, meaning that we are born with certain rights by virtue of being human beings, and that the role of the government is not to give us our rights. The role of the government is actually to protect the rights that we have by virtue of being human beings. And um, that's not being taught in many schools. And, and second of all, what's also not being taught is that our government, our, our country, amongst all other countries in the world, has been the best in the history of the world at actually protecting those God-given rights. Instead, so many young adults are being taught to actually disdain our country and our country's founding and our country's founder. Now, our nation might be able to survive, but are we going to be able to fully thrive? Um, I, 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 um, I don't think we'll be able to fully thrive without 
reforming the education system. We could end up um, may, maybe not disintegrating into um, anarchy or, or tyranny, but we could end up not being able to actually realize our full potential. Um, if you look at places, uh, if you look at Western Europe, uh, for instance, it's not as if they're living underneath uh, um, different regimes, but they don't have the same level of freedom that we have. And uh, that actually uh, turns out that that impacts not just your, 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 your civil freedom, but it actually impacts your, your, um, your material well-being as well. Well, you know, you have to look at some of the laws that are being passed in Europe and England also, that even some something that be innocent speech, the person can be arrested and prosecuted for. Very innocent speech. And we're already going down that road, you know, with certain pronouns can no longer be used to ad- identify gender. Uh, you speak out against a certain group in society, even though you're not advocating for violence or anything, you just may make a an offhand comment. And all of a sudden, cancel culture closes in around you. There are safe zones. Um, you can have Antifa and Black Lives Matter hurl curses and curses at law enforcement or other peaceful protesters being assaulted. But you here on the right are the one that's in the wrong. We're the bigots. We're the violent individuals. And it was, it's it's a very frustrating thing to see and uh, the path our nation is going down, very frustrating and upsetting. Yeah, well, we have to always remember that that free speech includes the right to offensive speech. In fact, the, the whole idea of free speech is, is to ensure that you never have um, a situation in which a minority or a majority can impose their, um, their standards of speech um, on uh, everyone else. And over the years, you've seen... Um, for many years, anyway, the, the ACLU really recognized this and, and worked uh, to, to ensure that even, even the most hateful speech um, was not able to be censored by the government. Um, because once you allow one group or one message to be censored, well, that actually means that your own speech, your political viewpoints might at some point be censored as well if the political tides turn against you. Um, so we need to remember we can always speak out and we should speak out um, against hate or against viewpoints that aren't hateful but that we disagree with. That's our right to do so. But we don't want to cross into that line of trying to get the power of the government, the hand of the government, to start enforcing that and muzzling other people. Um, that is a, a dangerous precedent, and um, we, we, see, we see the fruits of that in other parts of the world, in places like um, China, for instance, where – um, you know, speech is banned, and they always free speech is banned, and it's always under the guise of we're protecting the public peace, or we're, we're this is for your own good, it's for the public health. But at the end of the day, what it really does is just uh, um, preserve the ability of those who are in power to remain in power. Well, you know, you mentioned China, and uh, we were talking about China earlier. And they do have it where they have the app on everyone's smart device that has facial recognition so they can recognize the emotions on an individual's face and then modify that individual's behavior as the Communist Party seems fit. And it's amazing these cameras that watch them on the street and anywhere else they go. Then who is going to be representing the company that makes those marvelous cameras and is going to lobby for them here in the United States? But former Senator Barbara Boxer. Talk about trying to bring Chinese censorship here to the shores of the United States. 
Well, there, there, there's no doubt that some look to China as a model to, um, uh, to mimic here rather than uh, realizing that uh, despite the progress that China has made economically, um, the rights of the individual are actually moving backwards. And there's so many examples of um, religious minorities, whether it's the Muslims in, in China or even the very small Jewish community, and of course the, the Christian community that are being um, persecuted, being repressed. And sure, you can go ahead and, and earn a living so long as you do not cross the Communist Party. And I, I mean, we saw that um, Jack Ma at Alibaba, one of the world's largest companies, learned that just recently when the government was able to arbitrarily just put a squelch on their um, on their um, on their capital raising drive. Uh, so, um, say uh, when it comes to respecting individual individual freedom and um, respecting the rights to privacy, um, we cannot be looking to China as a model to follow. We needed to look at them as an example, as a warning example to avoid. Oh, absolutely. Well, Joel, it has been a pleasure having you on the show here today. We definitely want you to come back on. There's so much I'd to talk to. about, especially once we start to scratch the surface of China. And just to let you know, I've already started scheduling next week's show, so I'm going to have Mitch Gerber on here talking about organ harvesting. Uh, and then I'm waiting for the confirmation of General Spaulding, who was an expert on China, and a marvelous book that he wrote uh, was Year, two years ago, uh, bring him back on to discuss the other aspects of China uh, and uh, slave labor and everything else, go into the whole gamut. Uh, there's so much more to talk about. But I want to thank you for joining us, and I'm sorry there was a mix-up last week. Oh, thank, thank you for having me. That was uh, that was my, my, on, my, on me last week, so I'm really glad <laughs> we got to talk today. Thank you. Well, as I say, defecation occurs, and sometimes it's a little too often. <laughs> <laughs> well, have a great weekend. You too. God bless. Have a great day. Right. Check them out at Heritage, heritage.org, Joel Griffith. Uh, that's all, all we right. got Thank for the both. show for uh, today, Curtis. And uh, I, I'm telling you, I have no idea what's going on with my equipment here, but something crashed everything. So I had to go old school. So I'm waiting for General Spaulding to be confirmed, but we are confirmed with uh, Mitch Gerber. Uh, so that's all I got for today. And I say, Curtis, uh, I don't know if I can play the closing song because I'm not trusting my board and anything going through <laughs> it. So otherwise I would have made Gary Pecorella Save America. But if anyone's interested, uh, check out Gary Pecorella over on YouTube, and the name of the song is Save America. So that's about all we got for today. So, Curtis, cross our fingers and hope next week goes a little bit smoother. I'm telling you, this was a, a ride today. Oh, a definite, definite ride. Um, hopefully I'll have all the kinks worked out and find out what the heck is going on. We are just now 18 shows away from hitting our 1,000th episode, and we are now 11 years running here on Southern Sense. So thank you, everyone, for uh, sitting out and joining us, and hopefully next week we'll go a little bit smoother. You, you would think after 11 years I wouldn't have any of this happen, but like I said, the trolls are out there. So until then, I yep. say good night and God bless. All right, everyone enjoy the weekend and be safe and happy. Until then. <laughs>